The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who would love to have a documentary filmed about his own life, my co-host... Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, Andy will be joining Dan to review this week's Once Upon a Time. Then I'll be here for the rest of the show, as we're back to reviewing a full schedule of our favorite shows, including Castle, Go On, Modern Family, Supernatural, The Big Bang Theory, Person of Interest, and Fringe. And as expected, we're going to wrap this episode up with our Airwaves Rundown section, featuring our thoughts on Sons of Anarchy, New Girl, Arrow, Bones, Burn Notice, and much, much more. But before we get into all that, we have everyone's favorite section, News with Nico. Star Wars 7. Will Darth Vader rise from the ashes? Rumor has it that the Sith Lord will return for Disney's Star Wars film. As we know, Darth Vader bites it in Return of the Jedi. Like, full-on, roast in a fire, turns into a ghost, end of story, right? Well, according to the British tabloid express.co.uk, an industry insider claims that Disney is looking to resurrect the iconic villain for Star Wars Episode Seven. The insider says he's an integral part of the franchise. Replacing him is virtually impossible. The plan is for him to return and play a significant role in the new films. It's important to keep in mind that tabloid sites, especially from the UK, are not exactly renowned for their Hollywood accuracy, so it's best to take this news with a big block of salt. After all, Michael Arndt was just confirmed to be penning the feature a few days ago, so really it's tough to know where anything's coming. On the other hand, it's also unwise to completely write off the power of marketability, of which Darth Vader has a small moon's worth. As for how you go about resurrecting a dead Sith Lord... The insider added, this is science fiction. Remember, Darth Vader will rise from the ashes. Okay, so this is wrong on so many levels. Yes. This is the first thing since the announcement that Disney bought Lucasfilms that has me upset. You can't retcon Darth Vader's death in Jedi. It was essential to the story, and having him not die, not turn away from the dark side in sacrifice to save his son, ruins the original trilogy. Seriously, Disney, don't do this. Plus, Vader was no more. He became Anakin again when he turned from the dark side. He became a Jedi again. Remember the end scene where he, Yoda, and Obi-Wan were all in spirit form overlooking the celebration? There is no resurrecting a Sith Lord because Vader no longer existed. Anakin returned to replace him. So I hope this is merely an unsubstantiated tabloid rumor or Disney... I'm going to be pissed. Plus, remember how mad people got when they replaced the ghost Anakin with Hayden Christensen? I do. So uh, this is like doing that, but ten times worse. So bad <laughs> exactly. idea. A Firefly exclusive. An exclusive clip from Brown Coats Unite, the 10th anniversary special. No, you still can't take the sky away from me. Take my love, take my land, take me where I cannot stand. I don't care. 
I'm still free. You can't take the sky from me. As 10 years after Firefly's debut, the show's fandom still runs deep. Firefly's 10th anniversary and continuing popularity was discussed in a Science Channel's new special, Firefly Brown Coats United, which aired Sunday, November 11th at 10 p.m. Joss Whedon, Nathan Fillon, and the entire crew of the Serenity reunited to provide an oral history of the franchise and their thoughts on why it has continued to resonate with viewers. Sean Mayer, Summer Glau, Adam Baldwin, Morena Beckerin, Alan Tudyk, Gina Torres, and Jules State, along with executive producer Tim Minear and executive story editor Jose Molina, all take part in the special. In a great clip available on our Facebook page, everyone's favorite captain, Nathan Fillon, discusses his nude scene and the double standard of male versus female nudity when shooting scenes. The special, what I was able to see of it, was amazing, and I hope that I'll be able to purchase it someday to watch it all. If I hear anything about it being up for sale on DVD, I'll keep all of you brown coats in the loop. Also, there was a shocker dropped in that special about the Anara Mal love story that would have really turned some heads if it would have happened. Mm-hmm. So there was a shocker there. So it is worth watching it if you can get your heads on it for that scene as well, because it blew my mind and had me look at the show a little bit different, if you can believe that, 10 years later. Arrow targets fringes Seth Gable to play Big Bad Vertigo. Nice. This is sure to make fanboys and girls everywhere dizzy with excitement. Fringe alum Seth Gable, who played Lincoln Lee, is joining Arrow as a scary and nightmarish supervillain modeled after the DC Comics character Vertigo. The CW Hits version of Vertigo will be vastly different from the Vlatvian Count in the comics, First off, his name won't be Vertigo. Secondly, Not Vertigo will exude a darkly grounded Christopher Nolan-esque vibe. On the other hand, the deadly new drug that becomes all the rage in Starling City in the Big Bad's introduction episode, slated to air in early 2013, will be called Vertigo. It's safe to say Not Vertigo's superpower, the ability to disorient and unbalance his victims, will remain intact. An Aerosource describes the evildoer as Oliver's deadliest adversary to date. So apparently this means John Barrowman's well-dressed man is not going to be the Vertigo after all. As I said, keep an eye out for the actual not-Vertigo Vertigo early 2013. And I could see Seth Gable playing a really good psychopath. I think it's going to be good. Uh, yeah, it's going to be crazy. And I think the whole drug issue with Thea may get mixed up in that episode as well. I would almost guarantee it. Yeah. Once Upon a Time hits all-time low in this week's ratings. Uh-oh. How is that even possible? Megan Ori is too sexy to cause a 23% drop to a series low. I agree. Tale of a Full Moon came up empty for ABC's Once Upon a Time this Sunday as the sophomore drama dropped 23% in the demo to a series low 2.7 rating. That sad slice could land Sunday's usual non-sports demo leader in second place this week, depending on how Fox's football-delayed animated lineup shakes out. In total audience, Once fell... 14% to 8.7 million viewers. Basically, from the other numbers from the night I've seen, though, scripted TV was down, and NBC's football with the Bears game significantly owned the night. Yeah. So nothing to worry about for one of our favorite shows. But it's Just, unfortunate for a good episode. Yeah, it was perplexing that it dipped that hard when it was such a cool episode. Yeah, the Ruby character is pretty awesome. Sci-Fi will premiere Continuum this January. Remember a few weeks ago when I said that Sci-Fi had bought the rights to distribute this Canadian show in the U.S.? Well, Sci-Fi has just announced that it will premiere the time-traveling police drama Continuum 
Canada's highest-rated scripted basic cable series, starting Monday, January 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern. As I said, this new story finally confirms that story from August that the show would air on sci-fi in the U.S. The series stars Rachel Nichols from G.I. Joe, Rise of the Cobra, and Alias as Kira Cameron, a cop from the future who is suddenly trapped in the present day. When a group of fanatical terrorists escape their planned execution in 2077 by traveling back in time to 2012, they inadvertently sweep along Kira, a dedicated city protective services officer. Continuum also stars Eric Knudsen from Jericho and Scream 4 and Victor Webster from Castle and Melrose Place. In addition to landing the two seasons for broadcast, Sci-Fi has also acquired the U.S. rights to distribute DVDs alongside Universal Studios Home Entertainment. I watched this show when it originally aired in Canada, so I wholeheartedly recommend you watch it when it airs on Sci-Fi. For more details, check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. Is it still going on now or is it over? The first season is wrapped. And they're going to rebroadcast the first season on Sci-Fi as the first season, and then second season is in production now. And when when it it would probably be next fall or maybe it'll be summer. Se- it was a summer series this this year, Canada. Maybe next summer it will be a summer like Warehouse 13 and Alpha's start times for season two. I, I don't know. There hasn't been any announcement about season two yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And I would say. January 14th, you should watch Continuum because it, it's definitely an interesting story, and I like Rachel Nichols in this series. Is it her in the series, or is it her in the tight jumpsuit? No, she's actually pretty good in this. I like Yeah, and, and that also may make its way on the ATA to talk about a little bit, too. Yeah. Maybe a rundown show. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Yeah, great stuff, Nico. And now it's time for Andy to join us for our section on the Once Upon a Time episode, Child of the Moon. Ruby's fear about turning into a wolf during the first curse-free storybook Full Moon is confirmed when one of the town's residents is viciously murdered and Ruby is a prime suspect. Decker, aka King George, threatens to expose David as a shepherd, not a prince, and not fit to run the town as a sheriff, and Leroy stumbles upon some treasure in the storybook mine that could help bring Mary Margaret and Emma back into our world. Meanwhile, in the fairytale land that was, Red Riding Hood finds a kindred spirit in Anita, a charismatic, mysterious leader of a pack of humans who, like Red, turns out to be wolves. Okay, with that, Andy, take it away with your thoughts on this episode. Yes. First of all, I was wrong because there are clearly still things we can do with this character. So just screw what I said a few episodes ago about Ruby. I was wrong. Uh, this uh, The first point is about, you know, this was personally the best episode of the season so far the character of ruby and red no when you have an episode with this character it's always interesting oh yeah it's it's always a great continuation on the whole wolf story and you know and when it's not a wolf story episode it's always interesting to see how she interacts with all the other characters so it was nice to have ruby meeting her mother which by the way one of the best castings ever like Annabeth Gish and Megan Ori, they could I, I swear swear they could be related. They look so much alike. Yeah, it was a lot like the younger Snow White and the older Snow White kind of thing. Indeed. I thought it was perfect. For sure. And it was also a surprise to me it was a surprise that she, that she was her mother because I didn't I thought it was going to be like a mentor figure, figure or something but uh, being the yeah. mother was even better. Uh it was interesting to see how Anita taught her about the whole wolf community and how to you know control the wolf inside uh i was 
shocked that it went so quickly and we didn't get to see that much training, if you know what I mean. And, um, yeah, it was kind of that weird one flashback that actually my sister who was watching the episode with me on DVR almost fast forward through because she didn't realize it was the show. <laughs> okay, well. So that was kind of, we almost missed it. Lesson number one, never uh, fast forward when you're watching a new episode or something. I guess so. But still, it was interesting to see, you know, that we got to explore more of the deeper pain and struggle that Red has to deal with both in the fairytale land that it was and in Storybrooke. So, but basically, it w- I thought it was a great episode for Ruby. And as for this whole season so far, this is the best episode to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, the stuff with Ruby is really great. I mean, she's a really strong female character. And, I, we, you know, we kind of dug the episode a couple of weeks ago, the one with Belle's father and that whole situation where she had some kind of, she had cheesy or weak lines where Red kind of came across as a dope. And I was glad that we got to see some good acting out of Megan Ori. Yeah, um, she's a, she's one of, um, they made, you know, if there's one thing they made a, uh, made a good decision of this season was to make her a series regular. Yeah, and a so, bigger part, yeah. Yeah, so thumbs up to the writers and the producers and everything, and to Megan, of course, if she listens right. to the show. And, uh, the, and really, I, I think that she's an actress whose career can build from this show. Oh, yeah. As well. I mean, she's, she's a very beautiful actress, as well as talented. And so Indeed. both kind of sets itself up together really well to make her, you know, something that can break out. And I do like her having to deal with the wolf thing. Yes. You know, I, I feel like, particularly when they have female characters deal with this situation with the monster inside of them, I feel like it makes them stronger looking almost. It feels like a Buffy thing to me. Right. Similar. Well, and, and Buffy, in a sense, is more of her abilities are like superpowers kind of thing. And I think Red surpasses great that. great one-liners. Okay, great one-liners. And I think Red almost surpasses that because she's dealing with a deeper struggle than Buffy is. That's di- to- two different shows, to be honest. Right, right. But, but uh, let's, not, let's not compare. You know, they're both great, both actresses, both ca- great characters. And they're, and they're great at what they deal with in each of Indeed. their roles. Something that, that I thought of from this episode, um, because um, I, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but... There was a new, there was a new Red Riding Hood movie, and right. I saw and saw, and I thought after I saw Megan O'Reilly's portrayal of the character, I thought if they had had her in that movie and and maybe change the story a little bit, like you know, I think she does the Red Riding Hood much better than everything else that I have done that I have seen right. so far. And I know it's off topic, but I just wanted to mention because she's so wonderful. The next point, Aurora and Henry's, mostly Henry's, little storyline continued from last week's episode, and Mr. Gold helping him, really, for free. I know it's only been like one and a half season, but really? Are, are you guys really thinking that yeah. he's going to do this for free? I'm like, Regina, really? Well, the only thing the only thing I could say to justify that is that he's a kid, and it re- Henry reminds him of his lost son, so he has a soft spot for Henry. I guess so. I'm now going to think of it, you know, in back in season one, every scene that he would have with Henry, he was always like, you know, kind to him, you know, he would always be like, you know, hi, Henry, how are you? And like, you know, he would be like, you know, this, you know, funny, you know, little funny guy and so on, but Henry was like, you know, Hi, I know who you are. Get yeah. away from me. <laughs> I don't know what you think about this, Dan, but I think that Henry and or Aurora will somehow be the way to get Snow and Emma back because the hat is gone. Well, such a big part of the fairy tale world is dreams and what comes from that and what they mean. So that being the way they get back is pretty cool. Yeah. And I think it adds to Henry's importance. It almost makes him like the key to the worlds. Yeah, but he you know, and that's what he's been has been since the last since the first episode of this show. Right. He's he's the guy who knew all of this. No one believed, and he was the guy. You know, it was a little boy right. who was right all along. And if you watch 
if you have seen the trailer for next week's episode, which I won't go into, you know, you're going to see how great this storyline is going to go go on for the next episode and i'm glad aurora is somehow connected to it as well because i like the fact she has sleeping problems because it's you know it's ironic you know she was asleep for 100 years and now she's struggling with that you know it's um it's a mature take on the character yeah i mean i've always thought of that when i you know watched the disney movie as a kid guys like man it would be hard to go back to sleep again after that uh-huh. and they address uh-huh. that perfectly i know it's kind of funny think of it you know in that regard but on the show it's it's a really it's a cool dramatic issue and again with dreams being the key why not have sleeping beauty have something to do with that. So it's Sleeping yeah. Beauty's in the character's title. Yeah, and also uh, regarding the whole dream thing and so on, love is also one of the things that's so important in this world. That yeah. uh, help. So maybe like last season, it was love was the you know the key. Yep. Maybe this season's theme is about dreams. Dreams. And I think that love theme will stay in there as well because it works yeah, it, very, it, very it well. Definitely, it's still it's still here. But like the now the dream theme in in if you look yeah. at the way the love theme last season was, it's. Almost, it's almost now. It's the main thing, and so on. Uh, moving on, the, the last t- topic: King George is officially one of the series' most wicked villains, be- oh, mostly yeah. because Alan, me- mostly because Alan Dale is such a fantastic actor, and I want to see the showdown between him and Charming in the upcoming episodes because Dale. Oh my! I love him. He's such a great actor. He's such a powerful actor as well. Nico thinks that it's going to be most interesting. He thinks that King George is going to redeem himself in the end or make his peace with Charming eventually. Eventually, indeed. It's going to take about a season or so to get there. But when it comes down to it, he thinks King George is really going to take on his role as what he should be, which is Charming's father. But it's going to take some things to get there. Oh yeah, I you know I can see this you know go you know progressing until episode like. 17 right. or something. The other thing with King George, I liked it that he was the villain behind the plot because this show so many times says that Mr. Gold is the big bad behind what's going on. And thank Funny. you for mixing it up and making King George. I thought Anita was going to be the, the the person who was going around and atta- uh, killing people. Too. In the, I was like, you know, because, you know, I know she's her mother, but like, you know, what if, you know, she, what if she's pissed at her and just wants to get revenge on her or something like that? Or maybe, you know, she, Anita lost control of the world in this world and so on but i was i, I thought it was I, I agree it was um i was glad that they didn't you know use the you know the the, the get special guest star of the episode or mr gold or something like that and they, they you know mixed it up a bit but with that being said it was a great episode i don't know do you think this was like this do you think like it's me that this was the best episode of the season so far i i love the ruby character so it's great stuff Okay, the other great thing with the Ruby character, just real quick, I know we're right out of time. I really liked her friendship with Belle and okay, their Me connection. Too. That's really great stuff, and it's natural that Belle would have this feelings or this attraction, would care for Red as such a great friend based on her attraction to the Beast. She anyway, people, good. this week there won't be a new episode of Once Upon a Time. There will be um, the new episode will air next week, so tune in for next week's discussion of that episode or yes. the week afterwards. So. Uh, if you're surprised why there's a new, ep- new episode on Sunday on ABC, now nah, you know why. But if I were you, check out the trailer. It's awesome. Yes, and also just because Andy might not be back with Once Upon a Time, that does not mean you won't be hearing his lovely voice this next coming week uh-huh. because he is somehow going to be a part of our 100th episode once we get all that together and planned out. 100th episode, guys. <laughs> it's exciting. It's exciting. So tune in for the 100th episode that's coming up in two weeks from I remember. And also make sure to hear my lovely voice on Once Upon a Time with Dan and Nico in a few weeks. And now it's time for Nico to join the party once again. Hey guys, I love this episode of Once Upon a Time because it focused on one of the sexiest characters on the show in Megan Ori's Red slash Ruby. 
but also because that red slash ruby character is one of the most imaginative and interesting takes on the classic fairy tale characters. I enjoyed the flashbacks of Ruby in the fairy tale world, but was concerned that she was less of a strong female character in these scenes and more whiny and weak. Though I suppose you could blame that on the ceaseless pursuit by the king's men and villagers hunting her, but I felt it was inconsistent with last season's introduction to her. Regardless, Ruby was great in Storybrooke though. You knew she wasn't behind the death, but the flashbacks were added in a way that made you consider that some of the wolf pack crossed into Storybrooke 28 years ago and were responsible. Bonus points for that surprise twist, though. Ruby's desire to sacrifice herself to protect the town was sweet and touching, as was Charming and Granny's belief in her. I'm glad she didn't have to go anywhere and go, or go into hiding for multiple episodes. And, because it must be mentioned, the wolf effects were not horrible. The actual wolves were well animated, but the scenes when they were racing through the forest could have been rendered better. But they also could have been much worse. Changing gears, Allendale's King George was like Lana Perilla's Regina for most of season one, evil for the sake of being evil. He's playing an archetype, and that's fine, but unfortunately there's no real feeling behind it. I don't know, I guess I just don't understand his motivation for hating Charming so much. It's not as if Charming killed his son, he just refused to play the part, marry King Midas' daughter, and potentially could have cost the king his throne. It seems death of a son level revenge motivation that doesn't quite fit. Regardless of motivation, his level of cruelty is right up there with the evil queens though. This was demonstrated by his actions. He killed the human incarnation of Gus, the mouse, and framed Ruby for the crime, and then he burned Jefferson's magic hat, the only portal to fairy tale land. On an aside, I felt that the writers of the episode missed a perfect opportunity to reference a Disney song in the mob scene. I was expecting them to say, Anyone else expecting that classic line? Oh well, getting back to King George, despite my lack of understanding for him, this episode fit everything we know about his character. And Dan, you mentioned my previous theory that eventually he would find redemption and turn from his path of revenge to eventually help Charming. The more I think about it, the less I see that truly happening. He doesn't have a reason to turn towards good like Regina and Gold do now. Indeed, Storybrooke will be in trouble if he and Cora somehow join forces later this season, which I think will be what happens. Maybe after he realizes what a fool he has been to side with pure evil like Cora, then he will have that motivation to redeem himself and beg Charming to help him do so. Anyway, love this episode and am bummed about the week off next week. Looking forward to the show's return in two weeks, and I'll talk to you guys about it then. And now it's time for Nico to join the party once again for a really entertaining but yet different mockumentary style episode of Castle entitled Swan Song. When a rock star is murdered, the documentary crew filming the band continue on by following Beckett and Castle as they investigate. If you were like my parents and hadn't seen the preview for this week's episode of Castle, revealing it was going to be done in the documentary style of the movie This Is Spinal Tap, this episode probably started out as pretty jarring, making me feel that it maybe should have started off in the style of a traditional episode, with Castle having the gang at the precinct go over to his apartment to watch the documentary, after the fact, just so the audience knew what the heck was going on right away. In addition, starting things out this way would have been a great opportunity to fit Alexis and Martha, who strangely have been absent this season, get to the episode. 
So, Nico, do you think they really should have started out this episode with this apartment scene to explain what was going on? Or were you good with how the writers introduced this documentary style? No, Dan, I think they did it expertly and would have not ruined the effect, but lost something if they had to spoon feed the idea to you beforehand. I actually thought they handled the introduction of the mockumentary film crew very well this week and explained why all of a sudden we had film crews in every aspect of the episode. I also thought it was smart not to show us any Anything from Castle or Beckett's house this week that would have taken us out of the mockumentary style, since there is no way that they would have allowed those cameras in their houses. So Dan, maybe it was jarring for a few moments for the less initiated viewers, but I'm sure most people, especially anyone who's seen a Christopher Guest mockumentary, The Office, or any similar show that uses a documentary style to tell the story, caught on fairly quickly. And I personally, I knew what was going on right from the get-go, right. but the change in cinematography, and it also might have been my parents asking questions like, what was going on? Why are they doing it this way? Made it a little hard to focus on the information. So I ended up having to watch it twice, but I think that it made sense to me. It just was confusing to the other audience watching it with me. Okay. And moving on, once we got back to the traditional setting of this show, got the precinct, I was amazed at how well this show lended itself to the style of a documentary, or in this case, a mockumentary, I guess. And obviously, with Castle being such a ham, he was going to fit right in a documentary, as it was basically an extension of him shadowing Beckett for the past five seasons of the show. But the other characters' personalities really seemed to fit into breaking the fourth wall nature of a documentary, to the point that it felt natural, like the entire series was done in this style from the beginning. And many times when a show decides to change its cinematography style for a week, it ends up not feeling like an episode of that particular show, in the sense that it loses its personality. And that didn't happen here on Castle, because the documentary style acted as that crazy theory, workplace gossip, or spirit of competition which generates humor for this show. As Castle, Ryan, and Esposito all tried to outstage each other in front of the camera. Also, I know we've praised Nathan Phillips' laugh-out-loud facial expressions to add nausea on this podcast, but the documentary style allowed the other actors to show their chops with their own facial expressions. Can I have to say the looks exchanged between Ryan and Beckett at Castle, Esposito, and even Laney showing off to the cameras can be rolling on the floor. Got other viewers as well on TV.com. Along with lending itself to Castle's regular humor, the documentary style even fit in with the overall character arcs that are going on this season, with Beckett questioning if she should completely knock down the wall she built herself following her mother's murder, because she spent most of this episode creatively trying to avoid the cameras, get some very funny scenes. But there were other points where Beckett kind of enjoyed the spotlight, like when she was in the interrogation room and winked at the camera. At the same time, the break that Beckett ended this episode with, where she locked the cameraman in the janitor's closet, was totally a castle move, proving that being with him is restoring the part of Beckett that she lost when her mother was killed. And this is great for Stana Kanek as an actress, because she finally gets to join in on the fun that Nathan Fillon and the other actors have been having on the show over the past four seasons. So, Nico, did the documentary style feel... I guess more natural to you. I guess it felt natural to you from the get-go uh, once we got back to the precinct. And did you have a character that really stole the show for you in terms of interacting with the documentary? My favorite was Esposito for his That's For You America speech when he brought in a suspect who we totally knew was the wrong guy. But uh, what was your, I guess, favorite moments of this? 
Dan, I thought this style worked amazingly for this show, and it felt like any other Castle episode, maybe even better. I could have seen this style being used for the entire series with only a slight detriment to the series as a whole. Essentially, the home scenes would not have worked, and the whole Castle and Beckett relationship would have been a nightmare in this style. Now, as for a character that really worked this week with the style, I would have to agree that it was Esposito. I love that he changed into tight-fitting clothes to show off his muscles and how he kept making speeches and saying things you would expect a dirty, hairy-like cop on TV to say. Really excellent work from John Huertas this week. He really excelled in this in this style, and I really loved seeing his character be such a ham. We expected it from Castle and got it from Castle, yeah. but we didn't expect it from Esposito, yeah. and that made it great. Yes, it really did. I mean, it's all the show. And it's sometimes fun and especially when you get to a fifth season, the sea characters that we enjoy do something out of the box every once in a while. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And as for this week's mystery, I probably would have called it a standard procedure case as it got away from its theme of exploring the world of rock bands. But to our satisfaction, the writers were bailed out of being docked with giving us what we call a filler episode, thanks to the crew and the actors having so much fun with this documentary style. So, Nico, what do you think of this week's mystery? The mystery was pretty standard and nothing special, being that it was a band member who killed another band member for replacing him with a more talented guitarist. But that was okay, because this week's charm was in the change in style, the new cinematography, and the cast shining in their new setting or surroundings, with the cameras everywhere. I really enjoyed this episode, despite what was really a standard mystery this week that really didn't excite me too much. It was everything else that made this episode so great. Yeah, I mean, most definitely. And it wasn't even it wasn't even a knockoff of This Is Final Top episode. The more of the theme was documentary-style castle right? instead of the band. So I guess, I mean, that also worked by getting away from it because that's not the point of the episode. It wasn't a rock band theme. It was more, you know, filming it in a documentary style and the fun that comes out of that. Right. And finally, this episode gave a bit of a scare to the shippers because it seemed like some of the cameraman's footage he recorded in this episode was going to reveal Castle and Beckett's romance to Captain Gates. But much to my amusement, the footage was replaced by Castle just acting like a goofball behind the captain as she was telling the camera how wonderfully she runs her precinct. However, I think my joy over this false alarm is going to be short-lived, because the preview for next week's episode showed Beckett telling Castle they were crazy to think a romance between them would work out. So, Nico, do you have any final thoughts about this episode? Do you have any predictions for next week, based on the view I mentioned? Or is this just an example of ABC doing false advertising to get viewers excited about watching the next episode? Dan, I imagine they will actually have that conversation, unlike NBC with their false advertising, where there was neither sex nor drugs in the episode entitled Sex and Drugs. (laughs) But it will not be what we expect. I think they will discuss it and decide that it was worth the risk. They love each other, and that is what they will determine is the most important thing. As I said, it may come down to Castle having to choose between working with Beckett and being with Beckett eventually. But I think they will find a way to make it work until then, and he will make the choice easily to be with her. So no, I'm not worried. Next week's going to be fine. They're trying to drum up support, but it's not going to be like NBC where they don't even deal with what they advertise they're going to deal with. This is going to be better. Well, I think the next episode is going to have that weight of the world-like drama. Something's going to be at risk in the next episode because I just feel like with them, I guess the mid-season finale being a Christmas episode, that that's going to be fun and lighthearted. Oh, yeah. So if they're going to do anything that's kind of mid-season finale-like, they probably will do it next week. But then again, you know, we've seen other shows like Bones, when it was good, actually do a decent job of throwing in, you know, a mid-season 
finale cliffhanger within a Christmas episode. Good chunk right. did it very well I, too. I, I I agree, Dan. I think that there is going to be something in this one's gonna ramp up the excitement maybe more than the Christmas one will, but there will be something in the Christmas episode that leads to something progression. Right. Whether I'm just throwing this out there, I, I this is not a spoiler because I don't have any basis on this. That's but fine. maybe there's a pregnancy scare, you know, yeah. or maybe there's or not pregnancy scare because it'd be a good or at least I think Castle would think it's a good thing. I don't know about Beckett yet, yeah. but you know, there's a po- possibility of a pregnancy thought. There's the possibility that they could t- start talking about life together. Then that brings up marriage thoughts, things like that, and it's Christmas, so that kind of fits in there. So I don't think it's going to necessarily be a cliffhanger excitement cliffhanger. I think it's going to be a shipper cliffhanger. Yeah, it's not going to be progression on the the you know the the story arc with Beckett's mom and the politician or anything like that. Right. If gonna we're going like... to get something in, in movement in that, it will be this week's episode coming up and it this episode. Okay. That definitely makes sense. All right. So we're just going to have to see what happens with Castle next week. Exactly. And with that, we're going to go on to the show, go on with the episode that was really well done and made me glad this show's back. Entitled Video Game Set Match. Ryan becomes a big brother figure for Owen. Meanwhile, Yolanda believes she can graduate from the group. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Go On would have to be a toss-up between the destruction that Ryan caused with that really well-used t-shirt gun when being introduced to the table girl that Steven hired and Owen tricking Ryan into putting a ring on and singing to an unconscious hospital patient that wasn't his comatose brother. By the way, I have to give this episode credit for doing an excellent job of developing a brotherly bond between Owen and Ryan through video games. Got what I hope to be a recurring gag of them playing pranks on each other. So with that, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment for this week's Go On? Oh, absolutely. My favorite comedic moment would have to be the gags that they were playing on each other. The fact that he tricked Ryan into going into a stranger's hospital room, putting a ring on his finger, and singing to him. And the guy waking up and being like, It's from Owen. He loves you. Who the hell is Owen? What? 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 Nurse! That was a great prank. And then getting him back and making him think he spilled the ashes of his dead wife on the floor. That was oh, that was not as good, but it was a pretty good, pretty good. It was sick. It was sick. Those aren't our ashes. Nope. You put ashes in the vase just to get back at me. You're sick. You are sick. Do you know that? Sometimes in our lives. I'm going to tell my mom. Oh, please don't tell your mom. And I love that that humor that they're going to bring out is that both of these pranks were really sick and dark humor. And that really made it funny and made it a lot of fun. And I'm hoping you're absolutely 100% right that they continue that pranking each other going forward. Yeah, most definitely. It was a lot of fun. Okay, what was up for the, with the new opening sequence to the show? I know. I mentioned it's like the third or fourth one that they've had. And for a while, it was just that light, the, the go on side would go on signifying that they were on air, you know, and, right. and that seemed to be a pretty easy one. But then all of a sudden they had this like artsy fartsy one that they just did. And I was like, what? It reminded <laughs> me of a one? Fruit of the Loom commercial where Matthew Perry was the star of it instead of Michael Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Michael Jordan does Haynes, but you know what I mean? <laughs> 
All right. So with that, are we ready to move on to talking about our other sitcom? Absolutely. All right. Let's talk about the other sitcom that seems to be losing steam compared to some great stuff out there like Go On a New Girl. And that's Modern Family with the episode Mystery Date. Alex's academic decathlon means a weekend getaway for Manny and Luke when Claire brings them along, but they're preoccupied with meeting girls at the hotel. Meanwhile, Phil plans a guy's night at home with a fellow alumnus that he just met, and Mitchell and Cameron search for a baby gift for Jay and Gloria. In my opinion, this week's Modern Family was kind of weak sauce on the laughs, but if I had to pick my favorite comedic moment from this episode, it would be probably one or two things. Uh, Phil never really coming to the realization that his new friend played by Ferris Bueller himself Matthew Broderick was gay. And Jay saying he liked the mural Cam had painted in his office that was being transformed into the baby's nursery because it made giving up the room easier. Hold on. I like it. Really? Oh, thanks, Cam. You actually... Makes it easier to give up the room. Again, these moments really only made me chuckle, not burst out laughing like Goad did with the pranks. So that's why I gave this episode the rating of weak sauce. So, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family? That was kind of short on the comedic moments. Yeah, Dan, the final minute of this episode made the episode for me, with Phil coming to the realization that he was essentially on a date with Matthew Broderick. Huh. And the photo booth scene with Manny and the girl of his dreams. And when he creeps her out, Luke joins him and tries to kiss him until the cop finally yanks him out of the booth. It was actually a pretty great scene that saved this episode. Although it really, I didn't find it that bad of an episode as maybe some of the others this season let me down more. So it was better than I expected overall. Yeah, I just, I'm finding myself more and more struggling to get a laugh out of the show, though. Yeah, I still enjoy watching it, and I still enjoy the the characters. It's just not as, as you said, laugh out loud funny. Yeah, and I'm not wearing near jumping ship on this show. No, I'm going to keep no. watching it. It's just losing a little bit of steam. So with that, we're going to talk about a show that just keeps getting its steam back. Got that supernatural with the episode. Got a little slice of Kevin. Sam and Dean are surprised to discover that Castiel has escaped from purgatory, but doesn't remember how. Meanwhile, Kevin and his mother turn to a witch to help against Crowley, but she betrays him to the King of Hell. This was a strong progress, the overarching story forward supernatural episode that had the classic feel of seasons one through five. Because during the past two seasons, whenever we got an episode where something big was supposed to happen to push the story forward, there would be a lot of explanation or talking going on throughout the episode. And when we got to what should be the big action scene, got the end, like taking out Dick Roman, for example, we ended up with a huge letdown. Now this episode, it had all the talking and explanation, but the action at the end was exactly what it was supposed to be, as Sam got to test out these awesome flash bobs that can wipe out demons with an impressive CGI effect. And we got to see Cass charge up his angel power to full capacity in a brief showdown with Crawley that really makes me want to see these two guys go all out on each other in a fight. I also thought the scenes with Sam and Dean fighting their way through the abandoned warehouse and Crowley torturing Kevin were cut together in a brilliant fashion that had a sense of urgency to the Winchesters needing to rescue Kevin before he ended up spilling the beads, got closing the gates to hell. So with that, Nico, I wanted to ask, you know, what did you think of the action in this episode or the structure of it? Did it work for you? Did it build up the intensity like I, I mentioned it did? 
Yeah, Dan, I, I actually liked the, the flow of this, this episode, the way everything seemed to be building, 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 and then ultimately at the end we got that great showdown between Cass, who we, we didn't know was, you know, we knew was going to be in this episode, but we didn't know to what extent or if he was going to be fully back, which he wasn't necessarily, but, you know, we got to see him at least pretend to be fully back and get that supercharged first time i've seen since maybe uh season four yeah. where he actually extended the wings and really eyes going all electric like and really making the blue of, of misha collins's eyes really pop that was really cool but yeah i liked the progression it started from him just appearing on the side of the road and dean think he's going crazy to then being outside the the room and then dean really think he's going crazy then him actually showing up i thought the progression of that and then also the progression of how that built into the action was very good in this episode well i like how this show is remembering okay these are all powerful godlike beings you know let them unleash the hounds show us how powerful they are so they're scary to us i mean yeah. it almost got to the point in the past two seasons where angels and demons they weren't that scary you know it got to the point where it was like just taking out an average Joe, an average human. And now them showing these things, I mean, just get raised the stakes so much higher than it's been in the past two seasons. So that was just great to see all that stuff go on. And I mean, this is an angel for crying out loud. Let's, you know, have him let out his power, you know, pure roar kind of thing. So that was great to see all that. And also, this was an episode of Supernatural where this season's recurring guest stars really got the chance to shine. Because our man, Mark A. Shepard, got what I thought was some of his best dialogue in the series. As Crowley came across as much more sinister than ever before. Get some pretty intense torture scenes. Along with a moment where he levitated a woman into the air and made her explode, causing blood to splash everywhere. Do you want to talk about dark humor? That scene took the cake. And in addition, Laura Tom once again was great as Kevin's mob, basically stealing every scene. On that note, I was a little nervous that Mrs. Tran was going to lose some of the feistiness she displayed in her first appearance after being possessed by Crowley. But the writers left the fire in her character, giving us the hilarious concepts of Kevin's mob hiring a witch off of Craigslist, and Kevin having the hots for her. I know the witch ultimately betrayed them at the end of this episode, but I hope the writers can tweak it for her to be a nemesis slash love interest for Kevin. Like, Bella sort of was to Dean in season three because that story arc seems ripe with opportunities to draw some really funny moments out of Kevin's mob. So Nico, what was your thoughts on these actors' performances in this episode? I know we always love Mark A. Shepard, but Kevin's mob was great too. I agree. Lauren Tom was excellent once again as Kevin's mom. And Kevin was great again, too. Yes. I know I said I was initially disappointed with Kevin in his first appearance, but essentially ever since, I've been 100% on board with this actor and the character. I love the interactions between Kevin and his mom, and to an extent, the Winchester interaction with those two as well. I also love the idea of these two being taken care of by Garth, and I hope we get to see that going forward. Me too. But we'll talk about that in a minute. I'll also talk about Cass's return a little later as well. But Mark A. Shepard was a lot better in this episode than maybe the last couple times we've seen him. Not because he did anything wrong in those episodes, but they just weren't writing to that creepy side or that, as you were saying, demon side of him. And he was very much the king of hell in this episode, and I loved seeing it again. And it's a role he plays very well. Well, he plays everything so well, but right, yes, but... absolutely. Crowley is one of our favorite characters of his. Yeah, and 
Moving on to Sam and Dean's role in this episode, the first half dealt with Dean seeing Cass appear to him, as if he was a hallucination. And I really wish this would have been chalked up to post-traumatic stress, or survivor's guilt, as Sam called it, because I think Sam helping Dean through these issues would have been a great natural step forward in the brothers working out their differences over Betty and Sam taking a year off and his girlfriend and all that stuff. However, instead they decide to bring Cass back. And really all the great seeds Sam and Dean I thought could have had working out the guilt they have towards each other was overridden as Sam was sort of what I felt benched for the second half of the episode. So Dean had room to work himself up towards giving Cass an apology about leaving him in purgatory. So Nico, what did you think about Cass's return? And do you think it bent Sam or, in other words, put a hindrance on the brotherly relationship between Sam and Dean that's been running strong over the past, you know, couple episodes? Cass's return was better than I expected, and the addition of one of my favorite female science fiction actors to the show was an unexpected yet thoroughly enjoyable addition in Amanda Tapping's unexpected and I think really interesting, exciting role as an angel spy, and we'll talk about in a few minutes. Yeah. But I was all right with Cass's return putting Sam, as you said, on the bench or on the sidelines, because while it may not focus on the Sam and Dean relationship or what we've been focused on the last few episodes, it allowed for some serious Dean character development on its own. And that was satisfying and worth the Sam sitting it out feeling that you got. So, yeah, I think... Cass's return was so much better than I expected it was going to be and I think that's just more evidence of the great story writing and or, or story progression that that Jeremy Carver is bringing to this story now that he's taken the reins and we're not seeing the same cast that we saw under Gamble. Yeah, and I think I personally was kind of a little, you know, concerned to warm up to it right away cuz the character's been just through such a wild road of personality changes that it was hard for me to embrace him right away back and working as, as a character on the show because it was just so messed up for the past couple of seasons. It was almost like I, I, it was too good for me to believe it was true, I guess. And I need to ride with it a little more. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, the one thing with this episode, and again, it did get worked out, but when we first saw this scene, it kind of annoyed me that Dean leaving Cass in Purgatory was just a really straightforward thing, with Cass just simply not being strong enough to hold Dean's hand. Because with these writers doing such great stuff, I really thought they were going to put this theme of morality behind it. Like, my theory I had that Dean chose to pull Betty out of Purgatory over Cass for simply being the better man, or monster, or supernatural creature, or whatever you want to call it. And as you all know, that theory turned out to be wrong, obviously, but at least I got the theme of morality I was looking for. When seeing things from Cass's perspective showed that he decided to stay in purgatory as penance for his sins, explaining to Dean that despite his guilt, he needs to accept the fact that he can't save everybody, which is a piece of advice that I ultimately think Dean could use in forgiving Sam about the mistakes he made at the end of season four. Since, as I said last week, there really hasn't been any progress in the brothers completely getting over it until this season. And for Sam to find the redemption we think he's ultimately seeking, it has to involve getting his brother's forgiveness. So Nico, what was your thought on the actual explanation as to why Cass was left in purgatory? Do you think it can apply to to plant the seeds towards Sam and Dean working out their differences? Or am I just grasping at straws here? Dan, I don't want to criticize you too much, but I think you might be grasping at straws here. Okay. I think that Sam and Dean will get some character development out of the situation with Cass. I don't know if it's going to be the seeds for their working out their differences, but there will be definitely character development. But I think that will stem from the spying he is inadvertently doing. 
As for the explanation of Cass remaining in purgatory, I actually really enjoyed this aspect of this story. I've said that Cass is not my favorite character because of him going all wonky under Gamble's tenure, but this makes more sense with him realizing his mistakes and seeking redemption through his scourge in purgatory. I really like this idea, and I think it would be great change to this character. Bring him back to more what we enjoyed about him in the early days of seeing him on the show. So yeah, Dan, I don't think that necessarily we're going to see all of Sam and Dean's issues or even some of them really worked out because of Cass. But I think it's going to definitely, as I said, lead to some character development in the two characters. Well, it seems like they're getting little pieces from various people of what's going to get them to that point. You know, here it was like Cass gave a little bit of advice to work things out with them. Then we had Benny a couple episodes ago. Can we have Kevin and his mom? Can we have Garth? Yep. So it feels like they're gathering these people around them that's ultimately going to push them towards forgiving each other. So I think Cass was just one of the seeds in that happening, I guess, is more of what I'm thinking about here. Does that make more sense to it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't know if I explained it clear enough, but that's kind of where I was looking at with it. Again, I, I again, I agree Cass might not be able to do it himself. And I think a lot of my parallel was coming from Cass and Sam kind of having, following the same course of actions where they both kind of betrayed Dean and, you know, did something wrong against him. It kind of almost went evil for the greater okay. good kind of thing. So I, maybe that's where I was looking at things too. Okay. So even though I spent some of the time looking at this episode from my personal perspective of Cass taking away from the dynamic between the Winchester brothers which has been on fire since jeremy carver has taken over as showrunner the writers had to go through this heart-to-heart stuff between dean and Cass about who left who at purgatory and it made sense that they got past it now in this episode since i think they need to make room for their big plans with bringing heaven into the story because stargate sg1 got veteran sci-fi show actor amanda tapping was introduced in a very jarring scene that made me think my dvr had a glitch as she appeared as an angel who is now supposedly forcing Cass to report to her on the Winchester brothers' activities without his knowledge. So, Nico, what are your predictions for how Heaven is going to be incorporated with this season's story arc? And are there any other thoughts you may have about this episode or the future? Yeah, Dan, I think Heaven is spying on the Winchesters. I'm not sure why yet, but I think they want to keep tabs on the Winchesters because they don't want the power to close Hell's Gates falling into the Winchester's hands for whatever reasons. I think there's at least a faction in Heaven that does not trust the Winchesters. That they think that they have too much power, that they are too important, and that already they have done too much to avert the apocalypse, or or they've, they've done things that are ultimately either against what God wanted originally or what they think God wanted, and they, they're not yeah. trusting of the Winchesters. They want to make sure that that information does not fall into their hands. They want the angels to possess that information and not humans. Whether it's just Sam and Dean or all humans, I think that the angels want that power so that they have power over humans or that they at least are not. Well, maybe they just don't think it should be in humans' hands. Yeah, so the humans don't have a power over the angels or something of that nature. Therefore, like, I think if you read this, what the scribe wrote at the end, that there were multiple of these tablets out there and that. There were more than just the Leviathan and the Demons ones. And so that was kind of cool, actually. I think going for what I see the future of this, I think we're going to see one on vampires. I think we're going to see one on different alpha, all of the different things, one on werewolves, maybe, you know, and you want to get that plot line. 
I do want to see that alpha plot line. And so I do think there are going to be other tablets for that. But it also said that God initially intended these tablets to be in the hands of humans. And I think this is sort of the age old story about angels and humans being almost not fighting, but rivals for God's love and God's attention. So God made angels to serve, but he made humans with free will. And any story that deals with angels, ultimately somewhere in there, you're going to see that parallel or that that comparison brought up. So I think that that's why Amanda Tapping's group of angels is not necessarily against humans, but they don't want humans to raise up or to be elevated above them. And that's why I think they're trying to keep that power out of the human's hands and especially out of Sam and Dean's hands. Plus it puts Cass back into the role where his character worked the best. How so? He's he's having to report to God or a higher power and stuff. And he's the angel that's on the fence about their paranoia about humans. Yes. In that sense, absolutely it works best. So I, I think that's a excellent move. And I also found it fascinating that they brought Chuck back up on this episode. Yeah, Chuck was our favorite prophet from season four, I think, or maybe five. Four and five. Four and five, okay. Yeah, he was in four and five. And yeah, I'm, I'm it's just interesting they brought him up again. I, I don't know if he's up in heaven. Could it have something to do with this? I am not sure. But it's interesting well, it was he was a brought definite, back up again. It was a definite intended callback. We were supposed yeah. to think about him. So I would not be surprised if in the next couple episodes we do see him in a new role. So he is dead now, or more more than likely dead. He is not... Or an angel, I guess. Is that possible? I don't know if he'd be an angel or if he'd be someone in heaven who has a role in heaven yeah. as, a, as a former human, now just a soul. Okay, interesting. Yeah. And another character throwback we did mention briefly, it will be fun, and I think it's going to happen, when we get to see Garth and interact with Kevin and his mom. Uh, absolutely. I think that's going to be just a great scenario, situation. I don't know if we'll get an entire episode focused on them, but it, it'll be interesting to see where all that goes. I wonder if they'll do an episode where Sam and Dean are essentially just in the beginning and in the end, and it focuses almost entirely on Garth, Kevin, and his mom. And we get at Garth's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be interesting. I don't know. That would be kind of fun. But uh, with that, I think we're running out of time on this section. Yep. So are you ready to move on? I am. All right, everyone. So now we're going to move on to talking about the more humorous parts of the Thursday night lineup on CBS. And that's the Big Bang Theory episode with the 43 peculiarity. All with the Big Bang Raj and Howard try to figure out Sheldon's secret daily afternoon routine. Meanwhile, jealousy takes over Leonard and Penny's relationship. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory would have to be Howard and Raj pressing their ears up against the boiler room closet door to figure out just what Sheldon does when he mysteriously disappears at 2.45 p.m. Throughout this entire series, the writers have put some pretty hilarious homosexual undertones into Howard and Raj's straight friendship. And this moment really took the cake, as it looked like they were going to make out. Until Howard freaked out, and told Raj to turn around. What are you doing? I'm listening. <laughs> Can't you face the other way and listen? can't do anything right for you, can I? Also, the romance between Leonard and Penny is beginning to get a little complicated, as in How I Met Your Mother style, because they both are developing other love interests. And I like Sheldon's intern, Alex, as a love interest for Leonard, because I think it's funny how he's completely oblivious to his crush on her. You sure? You're cute? You're funny? Maybe you're getting hit on and you don't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> gotta get back to work. Thanks for listening. <laughs> no problem. Hope, hope no girls rip my clothes off on the way. <laughs> but I'm not so sure about Fetty's love interest, played by an ATA favorite of ours, Ryan Cartwright. Because it's weird for me seeing him play a character that doesn't have some kind of quirk. But again, this was his first appearance, so maybe that quirk is coming. And I certainly hope so as I don't want it to get all serious up in here like this season of How I Met Your Mother. However, with characters like Sheldon, Raj, and Amy around, I think that's an unlikely possibility for this show. So with that, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's pretty solid episode of The Big Bang Theory? My favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory would have to be the fake video that Sheldon created when he found Howard and Raj's hidden camera in his secret little hideaway in the basement at work. What the hell is that thing? I don't know. This is Dr. Sheldon Cooper experimental log wormhole generator test 44 wormhole generator test (gasps) the first 43 parallel universes i've checked proved to be empty i see no reason to suspect universe number 44 will be any different Really, it was a great prank and unexpected from Sheldon, which is what made it work so well. Much better episode all around this week. Very, very well done. So with that, are you ready to move on to the more dramatic portion of Thursday nights on CBS, Nico? Absolutely. All right, so let's move on to talking about the action-packed episode of Person of Interest, entitled Critical. Reese and Finch set out to protect a surgeon who has come up as as their newest person of interest. However, when they discover that someone from Reese's past is involved, they turn to a former number for help. This week's person of interest was a thrill ride from start to finish. As Reese and Finch had to save the partner of a surgeon being forced to take a corporate CEO's life. However, instead of turning into a knockoff of Fox's new show, The Mob Doctor, this episode was ultimately designed to introduce a new reoccurring foe for our heroes named Alistair Wesley, whose MI6 background always seemed to put him one step ahead, as if he was like this evil James Bond who had Finch's expertise in surveillance. In fact, this villain was such a technical genius, I honestly thought that Reese and Finch were going to pull off saving the surgeon's wife or partner, but the nurse that Wesley planted in the operating room was going to succeed to taking the CEO's life. Yes, the introduction of this new reoccurring baddie was so good. I would have totally bought into the guy getting some sort of a win. But getting away worked as well, since the next time he shows up, Reese will be a variable in his operation, which will make him an even deadlier threat. So, Nico, what's your thought on yet another great reoccurring villain for this great show? With any other show, I'd be worried that they were adding too many variables and too many players to pull off a convincing narrative, but Person of Interest proved in its first season that it can do just that with multiple single-episode villains, but also three season-long villains that were still in play now, and all of it worked so well. Much like my favorite comic book character, Batman, and really any comic book character for that matter, but especially Batman, is known for having a Christmas list-sized rogues gallery from his years of fighting crime. 
Not only does Batman have the largest rogues gallery of any major comic book character, the villains he faces are also the best developed and most interesting, though I may be a little bit biased from my love of the Dark Knight as a character. As Person of Interest continues to venture towards becoming almost a televised comic series with a vigilante do-gooder and his billionaire partner, its roster of villains is growing too. And I thought this newest reoccurring villain fit the rogues gallery of, of the big bad Elias, the crooked cops of HR with Simmons and the recently unmasked boss Quinn, the adorable Amy Acker as Hacker Root, Donnelly and his FBI goons, a vengeful ex-partner Kara Stanton, and former foe but potentially possibly a new ally, Agent Snow, and not to mention mob bosses representing every country in the United Nations. This new one fit nicely, and I think his Finch-level genius and his Reese-like tactical sense may make him the new most formidable villain in the rogues gallery, and I'm liking that. Yeah, it's interesting, and it's it's working very, very well. I mean, there's a lot to play with for this show, which is great, and it never gets old either. Speaking of, like, returning characters, I also thought it was quite hilarious that the Crooked Accountant from the season premiere, Leon Tao, returned to this episode as a repeat person of interest, meaning that his number came up once again on the machine. And I don't know what it is about the actor's performance as this character, but it always seems to make me chuckle. And I had a lot of fun watching him in Fitch's role behind the computer screen, to the point that I hope we see him there again. Not all the time, but every once in a while. So, Nico, what were your thoughts on Finch getting the opportunity to go out of the field in this episode? Got the return of Leah Tao. Do you like him as a reoccurring character? Surprisingly, Dan, I was all in on the return of Leon this week. Although I'm not sure that they can trust him or that he did not do something to Finch's system that will give him a leg up somewhere, Leon is the kind of guy always looking for an easy, quick score, i.e. stealing the gold-farmed money from the Russian mob, so I would not put it past him to have slipped something onto Finch's system that might get past even Finch's genius-level computer skills for the time being, and Leon will use this information to make money. That being said, I do foresee him being a sometimes ally of the group and is is always good for some very needed comedic relief. So yeah, I enjoyed Leon showing up. It did allow Finch to get out of the office or out of the hideout and into the field. And I loved seeing Finch in the hospital because he obviously had a a fear of blood. And that was great when he was nearly passing out or nearly puking in the OR. And he was still able to function. That was was good to see and, and a lot of good character development in Finch's part this week. Part of me thought they maybe should have addressed the hospital a little bit more to give us kind of backstory on why he has the limp and stuff like that. Because I thought that were where it was going to go a little bit. I had maybe given us some insight on the incident that I think caused Finch to have the limp and also to cause his partner to get killed. Well, I know that that's coming, and maybe they just don't want to rush into it yet. Yeah, and that's a good point, because it may mix things up for the characters. There may be a shocker involved in that one. That's going to mix things up a bit, and maybe it's just not time yet. Right. Moving on, I enjoyed how this episode somewhat explored Fusco and Carter doing police work outside of helping recent Fitch. In my opinion, Fusco calling Carter, as soon as he saw her card on a dead, I think it was a gangbanger's body, was just another example of Fusco's evolution away from the dirty cop he was in the pilot through him showing the loyalty to his partner that is expected of a hero cop or a cop we think is a good guy. Also, from what we saw here, I wouldn't mind person of interest doing an episode from Carter and Fusco's perspective or giving them the main story for the week. 
Again, this didn't happen here because Carter went off on her own in a minor subplot where Agent Snow used her to get the message to Reese that his old partner is back for revenge. Again, Fusco ended up joining in on saving the surgeon's partner to give us the much-needed interaction with Reese that we missed last week. Speaking of interactions with Reese, I thought it was really creative and realistic how the writers were able to avoid the annoying television trademark of a why-won't-you-tell-me-what's-going-on conflict when Reese received Agent Snow's message from Carter, with Reese telling her, you don't want to know this information as it will put your son at risk. So, Nico, what were your thoughts on Carter and Fusco's role in this episode? You nailed it. The use of Carter this week off on her own mission was a great way to progress into the future by having her discover the ex-partner Kara's plot and expose Agent Snow as being forced to work for her. This allowed Reese to find out that Kara is back and planning something big while not having to take time out of this week's episode to allow that to happen. Fusco once again was Reese's backup in the field and it's a role he plays so well. I thought both characters' roles this week were excellent. Carter is obviously more a thinker and will be used when they need investigative help and Fusco is better when it comes to force and undercover work. So they seem to use him more in those situations. Really, they both complement the skills of Reese and Finch, and that is why the team is so awesome right now. Oh yeah, most definitely. And do you think that Agent Stoke could potentially become that higher level government agent that we thought Reese and Finch needed to continue their operations? You know, I don't. And here's why. I think that he's burned. I think he's burned with the CIA because he's been gone for this time frame. And he's probably committed quite a few atrocities while he's being forced to work with Kara. So I think he's burned when it comes to being in the government and working from within the government. So I think it's going to be somebody else. I I still think it's going to be FBI when we we ultimately okay. when we ultimately get the guy. Yeah, that's a reasonable explanation. Just want to see what you thought on that one. And finally, for my crackpot theory of the week, I don't think it was a coincidence that Agent Snow and Reese's old partner showed up in the same episode where this villainous former NMI6 agent was introduced. Because the fact that Wesley recognized Reese from a former mission makes me feel like these story arcs are connected somehow. So with that, Nico, what's your thoughts on this crackpot theory? Do you have any other predictions for the future? Could also, do you got any final thoughts on this episode? Yeah, Dan, I like that idea of yours. I'm not sure they've given us enough information to support that yet, but that's why we call it a crackpot theory. I like that you're bringing these things together and seeing the connections or possible connections. This show is so good at doing things like that that we just can't help but start seeing connections, sometimes even when there are there are none. But I think you may be onto something here, and and that won't be the case this time, and there is actually some connection between this former MI6 agent and Reese and Kara – or possibly Reese and Agent Snow as well. So yeah, I think there's going to be a connection. I think that's why they were all in this episode, so we would make those connections. And I think it's going to be a good reveal when we finally do get another flashback to Reese's time in the CIA when he was working with Kara. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun to see that, especially the next time we go up against this Wesley character. Well, I think it's good that almost all the plot lines on this show have the potential to intersect or overlap with each other because then it doesn't make the show feel like it's going all over the place. Right. You know, they can direct it in a direction wherever they want it to go and they've got enough to make the story feel like it's moving in a logical manner and not go all over the place where it's like once upon a time's kind of feeling right now. You know, they, I mean, person of interest is introducing a lot of stuff, but at the same time, they can put it into one plot line and not make it so confusing or overwhelming. 
and they're doing a great job with that so far. So does that pretty much sum it up for this week? I think it does. Yeah, I think it's just, this was a great episode that showed us there's still great things to come from the show, and it's still rolling strong. Okay, let's move on to another show that is setting up still a lot of stuff, and I think pretty soon they're going to be getting to wrap a lot of things up. So let's talk about the show that always gives us a thousand crackpot theories, because that's Fringe with the episode 52010. The fight against the observers intensifies and a fringe team member plans an attack on his own. We were at a critical turning point in this season where things had to move forward quickly to set up the final sprint to the end of Fringe lore. After this week, we have only got six installments left and a little over four hours of actual story when you subtract out all those commercials. This episode really needed to get things moving, and boy did it deliver as Peter's transformation, or as I like to call it, observerification, is almost complete. The opening sequence kicked this off nicely in a sequence that shows off the more subtle ways that Peter's new implant is affecting his perception. In this case, his observer-like precognition came into play. What I think really sold this observerification, more so than seeing Peter's blue observer vision last week, was Joshua Jackson's portrayal or his performance, including the characteristic aloofness and head gestures we've come to associate with the observers, and he pulled it all off so well. Even his vocal patterns changed a bit in this episode to mimic those we've seen before from the observers. So, Dan, what were your thoughts on Peter's continued observerification? Did this play well for you? Well, I mean, right off the bat, Joshua Jackson played this beautifully. I mean, you really felt that he was becoming an observer, and it slowly progressed throughout the episode. You know, the problem is when you get a 13-episode season, you have to have that character progression happen kind of quick or happen within single episodes. And I thought Joshua Jackson's performance did an excellent job of this throughout this episode. As it seemed like minute by minute in this episode, he was losing his personality. And as you can see, and I hope you picked up on this, Nico, did he see more he went at the beginning of the episode compared to where he was at the end? Yes. And so I liked how they did that transition. That played beautifully. And I think with this happening in episode seven, there's enough time left for him to get his personality back in a way that makes logical sense. Yeah, I think so. But as we saw in the preview, I still think some of this is done just so we can have an awesome fight scene <laughs> at the end. Yeah, agreed. Which they've been building up to some sort of super-powered showdown on this show. And I think it's time. If you're going to end it, you know, go all out. Give us something cool. Agreed. And that's the one thing Fringe hasn't tackled yet, this awesome fight scene. So (laughs) if they do everything else great, they can do this too. And in this episode, we got some key backstory that finally gave the events of Letters of Transit a lot more context. William Bell, or rather his hand, is back in the mix, and a lot of things make more sense all of a sudden. And just like a few weeks ago when we saw our old friend Broyles, Nina was back this week to great effect. I hadn't really noticed, but in a sense I've really missed her. The character added so much flavor to the early seasons of Fringe, but she's been woefully absent for a long time, like all season to be exact. With Nina comes an answer to your question from last week, Dan, as we got a bit more context about how Walter's brain is coming back together and his personality is changing. Essentially, it was reinserted in Letters of Transit and not before Peter's disappearance like I thought. Rather, that was only a temporary for one mission reinsertion of his brain parts. 
Also, the dialogue between Nina and Walter provided a lot of insight on the relationship between Nina and Belle, which took a surprisingly touching and, for me at least, unexpected turn when the team finds a picture of Nina in Belle's safe and Walter comes to the conclusion that Belle, in fact, did love Nina. My only issue with this material was that I really wish this stuff was given an entire episode on its own instead of having to jam it into an already or into an episode that already had a lot of other things going on. Walter and Nina's dialogue seems a little like a rushed info dump in this episode, which was certainly a necessity given the nature of the script. But as I said, we're getting short on the number of episodes, and unfortunately, we may get a few things like this plot element that feel rushed going forward. However, I thought a flashback story would have done wonders to add richness to this story and further solidify the connections between this season and the ones that have come before. Dan, were you satisfied that they essentially answered your question about Walter's brain and did not leave us questioning when this happened for too many episodes? Also, did you enjoy Nina's return and what I think is the richness it brought to the story, even if it was a little rushed? You know, I enjoyed Nina's return. I thought that scene where she was acting like a mother to Olivia was really great when they were reunited. I I thought that was really well done. And I think Olivia needed someone to comfort her after what happened to Etta. Yeah. So that was a great moment. That I thought was the richness there. I was surprised with the cruelty that Walter conveyed to Nina. But at the same time, you could argue that from his perspective, that's what the relationship looked like. With William Bell spending all this time in another reality, not spending a lot of time with Nina, and him always being gone. I mean, right. Really, to his perspective, it looked like, you know, he didn't really care about her. So that was interesting. And it threw out a lot of my ideas that there might have been some sort of a relationship or an attraction with Walter and Nina. And my theory of the possibility that, that Peter could be somehow Walter and Nina's son or something like that. I had that theory, too. That's all vanished on me with that stuff. So I'm glad that was out of the way. But my only little concern about this is if, if William Bell was creating a new world, why wouldn't he bring Nina with him if he truly did love her? That's where I felt the rushing was going on because that wasn't explained all so well. Yeah, I don't think William Bell expected to make it into his new world. I don't think he was going to make it either. So I don't think okay, he was going to... Okay, it was gonna... a suicide mission. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because he said then... he would be the god that created it, but he wouldn't live there or he wouldn't have survived or he said something to that effect. So yeah, so that's why Nina wasn't going to make it either because that would be even more cruel to her to have her survive and not be with him. But I think ultimately this was just more clues that Walter and Peter are going to help each other resolve their issues. I think you're right. Uh, Essentially, Walter's, you know, getting Peter's humanity back is going to make him not so afraid of having the parts of his brain back. Right. Okay. So they did with the Nina scenes, they did a good job of establishing that ultimately. Exactly. But the main focus of this episode was Peter, and rightly so, since he's recently become the most interesting and seemingly most important thing about the Fringe universe. We predicted this would happen, and with Fringe, I enjoy being correct almost as much as I enjoy coming up with the craziest crackpot theories. But Peter's not quite as in control of his abilities as he'd like to be or he thought he would be able to be. His predictions aren't quite perfect either. The unforeseen variable, for example. And he's experiencing some rather painful side effects, though as of yet, we are not aware of what these side effects are actually doing to him. But overall, he's really digging his new powers and becoming quite a formidable enemy for the observers. How awesome was it when he used the first fringe event from season one on the observers as a bomb and that observer's jaw just melted off? Awesome. 
it's amazing to watch him beat them at their own game. And as an added bonus is that we get a better understanding of how the observers see the world. Peter's powers are brought to life by great directing and special effects, which are used very well here. The budget for this show is nowhere near what it used to be, but the producers still find ways to make the best out of what they have to great effect. The sublimation effect and the aforementioned observer's jaw melting off both were great effects and great use of the money in this episode. The last few episodes have done a great job of calling back to old fringe stories and bringing everything full circle. The flesh-eating compound from the pilot episode that I mentioned earlier, William Bell's hand from Letters of Transit, and the return of the beacons were all brilliant elements. Dan, what was your favorite thing about the Peter Observerification and his new abilities? Did you think the effects lived up to a fringe event despite having a last season budget? Are the callbacks to earlier seasons starting to help fill in the pieces for you this season like they are for me? I think the effects are great. I think they're going to get to a point where they're just going to blow the bag, where it, it's you know a canceled show. They just dump all their money they can into the finale. So I think that's what's coming. And I don't want to say that I have a favorite thing about Peter's observification yet, because I don't see think we've seen the full capacity of where it's going to go. Okay. But I'm loving the throwbacks to old fringe events. Yeah. I mean, it's a great way to bring things full circle. And yes, the observer's jaw falling off was pretty awesome. And I'm glad that they're letting us get inside the observer's heads for us to fully understand how they work and how they think. I think that's a huge thing. The only thing, though, is, I know you said you're glad Peter's back as the center of the story. I do think Olivia needs to have some importance, though, that I can't figure out what that is right now. Yeah, that that's definitely my next point, because our friends over at IGN made a great observation that Olivia seems less important this season than all the previous seasons, especially last year. You know, she was really the focus of last year. Right. In fact, she has seemed a little muted in the past few episodes, being relegated to not much more than a concerned wife and grieving mother. She hasn't really done much this season before that either, but I thought this episode would have been a perfect chance for her to use her FBI skills of deduction to actually figure out or discover Peter's secret in maybe dramatic fashion, or to also use her Cortexafan superpowers. Instead, she just kind of stumbles onto the whole thing with Peter, and he essentially spills it without any effort on her part. Afterwards, Olivia just basically runs away, which is not entirely out of character for her, and seems to be somewhat totally consistent with the way the writers have characterized her this season. But I do miss the Olivia who was much more of a fighter. Luckily, there's still time for Olivia to take a more proactive role in bringing Peter back to his senses, so I'm not too worried going for it. But Dan, you're right. She's definitely less important this year. So what's the deal with Olivia? Why is she not using her superpowers? Did something happen to her that she no longer has those abilities? Also, the writers have to start getting her involved in the action and story going forward in the next six episodes, don't they? So, Dan, I'm going to throw all those questions at you and also any final thoughts on this week's episodes because I might have missed a few things in this episode. So why don't you set me straight? Is it possible that Olivia is the one that makes the connection that Walter and Peter can help each other? Yeah, I think that's a possibility. That she's the center of that, that she brings that connection together, or ultimately in the end it's up to Walter to save Olivia Peter's relationship. Because we've always said that their relationship is the center of everything. Right. And maybe because they're apart, that her powers aren't working. That's a great observation, Dan. I hadn't even thought about that. But you're right. He was always the one that helped elicit her powers and helped her to control her powers. And every time she's used her powers, he has been nearby or within the vicinity. Exactly. 
Because at one time where she unleashed basically the hounds on David Robert Jones, that was when, wasn't he trying to kill Peter? Yes. Both, both times where we really showed her powers off. But really, they got to let her let loose with their abilities. Like, they've built, been building that up throughout the whole show. Yep. And I've always let it go, well, you know, it's not been time yet. There's more story to tell. There's more building. Her character's not there yet. Well, it's time now. Right. We're there. We're running out of time. So get it going. Let's do this. And if it is a thing where Olivia and Peter have to fight, then do that. But if they do that, I I just don't want it to turn into the finale for Chuck. Like, I want it to feel like it's a natural thing. And I don't... And I think... That with Fringe, it, they're not being memory lost involved, and this show just being, I think they have a higher caliber of writer through the show. Not that I don't enjoy Chuck, but I think with all those things, I think Fringe will maybe do a plotline similar to that, but make it that much better. But there hasn't really been a moment that's really hit me hard yet emotionally, like in previous seasons. And that normally doesn't happen on the show until about, you know, episodes 8, 9. So I'm expecting next week for them to really just start laying on the emotional impact on us. And they did with killing Etta, and then they kind of lost it again. Now they got to bring it back up. Right. So it's a matter of intensity. And now it's time to take the kids' gloves off, guys. There's no more story to tell, so let it loose. And that's all I've really got to say about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I enjoyed this episode. I, I really enjoyed the Peter sort of yes. devolving into a his observerification, as I, I love to call it. I'm coining that term. But yeah, so I, I really enjoyed that portion of it. And I think we're going to continue to get good stuff. And I think ultimately they're going to have to wrap this up in the in the absolute two-part finale. But I think Peter is going to be devolved almost to the point where he's inhuman he's still got a little bit of himself left and there's still going to be a slight you know still a connection between his father walter and and olivia that will be his path back and we'll see that in the finale but up, up until that point i think we will see, continue to see him devolve till we get to that fin- finale but i think they need to start showing olivia's powers now yeah. so that when we get that huge fight scene in the finale where peter and olivia work together they, they use the observer abilities that Peter has, the Cortexafan abilities that Olivia has. They take down all the observers, maybe even resetting the timeline so Etta comes back or the observer uh, invasion never happened. And we revert back to that scene in the park, whether they remember it or not, you know, whether they remember the future that they've been through or if they, it just re- reverts back to that moment without them knowing and they can live their lives in happy oblivion. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see Peter how Peter has go. to be a hero in the last hour of the finale, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's going to be the the actions that he and Olivia do together that ultimately save the world. And their reward as heroes will be to get their daughter back. Yes. That's my prediction. That, I think that's the way to do it. And hopefully it doesn't mean it's sad to Walter. Yeah, I, I think that would be emotionally just a kick, you know, to the gut. But it could also make it that much more impactful, you know. Yeah. So I could see them sacrificing Walter or Walter sacrificing himself for his son's happiness. And that would be very much in, in the vein of the father-son relationship we've seen throughout the entire series. All right. Well, I think it's time to bring on the rundown. Sci-Fi's home for Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. EMT. We know drama. I think so. 
But uh, um, one of the most intense shows on television. Yeah, really. But Homeland is one of my favorite shows. So we're going to talk about Sunday's episode, The Clearing. In the aftermath of the ambush, Carrie and the team scramble to gain control of the operation, while Brody attends a well-heeled fundraiser at a Virginia horse farm. Elsewhere, Saul drops in on Eileen, who is in solitary confinement. Coping, she can shed some light on the latest attack. And a conflict in data leads on Finn to fess up to their crime. Brody's always wanted to do what's right. That said, often with this show, and especially Brody, the question is, what is right? He joined the Marines and shipped out to the war, presumably to fight the good fight. After his years of captivity and conditioning under the sway of uh, Abu Nazir, he still thought he was doing right in his attempt to assassinate Vice President Walden and make him pay for his war crimes and the deaths of the innocent children he bombed. And now this week in the clearing, he again tries to choose the noble path when he takes Dana to the police station to report her hit and run. And really, by the end of this episode, Brody, Jess, and Dana are the only ones doing the right thing. Walden, of course, is ready to, to bury the incident and save his little bitch of a son's hide. I say that because this Finn character is, uh, there's no better word for him. He's a little bitch. <laughs> Estes is right there with him, playing the dutiful guard dog that he is. And even Carrie participates in covering it all up, convincing Brody that to play along even while he yells at her that none of this is bleeping okay. Saul's story arc was easily the strongest thread of this episode. When he's reunited with Eileen, who was his old road trip buddy from last season, who is being held in a federal prison in isolation as a CIA asset. Broken and beaten down, the former quasi-terrorist is now a spitter, a hitter, and another word that rhymes with that that adds S to hitter. Living in a supermax cell 23 hours a day. Grasping for straws after the Gettysburg attack, Saul hopes he can ID Roya's deadly contact, but all Eileen wants is a window, or rather, relief from her new hellish existence. In the end, Saul's affinity for this girl, a connection the two formed during that cross-country car ride, proves to be his weakness, and in showing, in showing her kindness, he fails not just in his mission, but also Eileen, too, allowing for her heartbreaking suicide, which ironically she believes to be the best last day. Saul says, I got emotional. It was sloppy. And that may be the case, but really, what was the alternative? If he were merely to smother his compassion, wouldn't he become no better than Walden or maybe Abu Nazir? Oh, and if you really want to get into what's right and what's wrong, let's talk about Carrie and Brody and whatever you call it that's going on between them. Just look at their scene together in the clearing of the title of this episode. Their natural connection is so right, but also so wrong. And much of it is because of everything that's wrong with the two of them. But I'll tell you what else is right. Watching this amazing show. Only four more episodes this season. Great stuff. So with that, going to move on to, I wouldn't say a great episode, but a pretty solid episode of a show that's in its 11th season. So it's it was great, at least at one point in its history. And that's Family Guy with the 200th episode. When Brian uses Stewie's time machine to oppress women who he meets at bars, he accidentally causes time to run in reverse. So he and Stewie must figure out how to restore the forward progress of time before Stewie's on board. This week's episode was the 200th episode of Family Guy, and it was 
a great milestone episode because it found a way to call back to many of the best scenes and gags over the years by reversing time. In fact, my favorite scene from this week's episode was a callback to one of my favorite scenes in the entire series, the Ibex scene, in which Peter, Brian, Chris, and challenge each other to be the last to puke after taking Ipecac, and the winner gets the last piece of pie. In the original scene, everyone seems fine for a few seconds, and then they all start violently puking all over the place. Well, this week, time was progressing in reverse, so rather than puking out, they reverse puked all of it back in. Great callback to a great scene, and really, I love that initial scene and that this just made it you know when they're reviewing all the different things from the series and all of a sudden i saw the puke on the floor i was like yes they're doing the ipecac scene and they did it and it was so satisfying i loved it and that's what made this really made this whole episode for me that scene the first time i saw it disgusted me then i became immune to it and now i find it funny oh i just loved it it just well, this really was. It was Family Guy's Greatest Hits played backwards. Yeah. And it was hilarious. I mean, they had Peter falling down the stairs. Then a chicken fight. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite things for Family Guy. The chicken fight in reverse was in awesome. In reverse, yes. That was just, it was just great. Great throwbacks. I thought there was a nice little funny moment between Brian and Stewie at the end. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed the retrospective special they had afterwards. Oh, absolutely. That was fun. It was kind of hear, fun to hear the writers talk about their perspectives and how it's had impact on a lot of their family members, including their 94-year-old grandmother. So that was kind of fun to see, too. Again, I loved uh, Seth Green boarded the Star Wars shirt in the special. Nice. That was blurred out. You know, good 200th episode of Family Guy. I like the 100th episode a little bit better, but this was fun as well. All right. So with that, I think it's about time we move on to Simpsons with the episode Gone, A.B. Gone. Grandpa escapes from his retirement home. When Homer and Marge frantically try to track him down, they follow clues that reveal secrets in Grandpa's past. They find that he worked at a local restaurant with Marvin Hamlish, got met and fell in love with the restaurant's singer, Rita LaFleur. Meanwhile, Lisa tries her hand at online poker, getting tips from the experts, including Jennifer Tilly, but is soon gambling with their college fund. This week's Simpsons was a pretty solid episode. The idea of Abe having a second wife that Homer was too stupid to realize he married her was interesting and carried the episode well, but they did not seem to do the classic Simpsons reset at the end of the episode to return everything to the status quo. So does that mean Abe's second wife might stick around, or was she just a fun one-off character that, well, that we'll maybe never see again? Likely the latter, but you never know. I enjoyed the Bart and Lisa plot as well and how Bart almost came to Lisa's rescue when she bet her entire college fund on a single hand of poker and lost to Bart. But the site realized that they were underage and took all their winnings and left them with only what they started with. As I said, classic Simpsons status quo. Ultimately, a good episode, but not one we'll likely remember when it's all said and done. Not like the monorail or classic episodes like that. The monorail is the greatest episode ever. Yeah, I'll think it compared to that. Yeah, it, it possibly is the best episode ever, and it, it comes from that really solid season three to five, you know, when Conan was a writer on the show. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that's our Sunday night reviews, so let's go ahead and move on to Monday night with How I Met Your Mother, the episode Splitsville. Oh, 
All right. Barney helps Robin break up with Nick, which she is hesitant to do so herself. Ted and Marshall play basketball. Can Lily and Marshall desperately look for some time alone? I was hoping Wu would bail me out again this week with a voicemail about this week's mother episode because I was not really uh, for or against this week. It was not particularly funny this week, but that has been less the focus this year in my opinion anyway. And this season has been a much more dramatic feel or has had a much more dramatic feel to me. In this episode, Robin and Nick can't have sex because he hurt his groin and she realized just how dumb he really is. Prior to this, all she cared about was the mind-blowing sex. Nothing really funny came out of this. Much like he did last week, Nick stuck out as the obvious sore thumb in this week's episode. Even among the rest of the gang's subpar shenanigans, his were among some of the worst. His stupidity this week was a little over the top, even by Scooby standards. You know, Robin's other thick-headed boy toy from season six. (laughs) Running out of ideas, anyone? Yeah. Well, Nick's personality quirk did help facilitate their breakup, It also lacked any emotional weight or comedic value. The fact that Nick picked up two chicks as he was being shot down felt pretty cheap and failed both dramatically and comedically. But I suppose it's appropriate that his character be left on the same indifference by which he was introduced. Plus, it paved the way for Barney to re-sow the seeds with Robin, which was the only major development in this episode. Likewise, Barney's random comments were, as usual, the best part of this episode, though I can't even come up with one from memory at the moment. So nothing too memorable. Ultimately, I'd give it a 5 out of 10 in my book in what has become a 4 out of 10 kind of season. Disappointing, but not terrible. And that's sad to see because this show was running on all cylinders a couple years ago. Exactly. Just great television every week. And the fact that they're running out of ideas, that's sad. Yeah, and let's jump into a show that's running out of ideas early as we're only in the episode with Revolution, the episode Ties That Bind. A ruthless tracker is sent after Miles, and Nora has to make a difficult decision regarding a family member. After an hour's worth of mixed messages about family, Miles professed scariest villain of all time doing nothing even remotely scary, and daddy troubles for multiple Monroe officers, I still have no idea whether, as our friends over at TV.com described them, pouty lips, budget Han Solo, that lady who always shows off her rockin' bod, and wimpy Google guy ever made it across the river in Ties That Bind, an episode that I probably should have watched in Fast Forward or on Heavy Meds. Both would have been equally productive. What I do know that by the end, our gang jumped into a river to run away from the scary men, but was it the river? You know, the one that they they had to get across and the next closest bridge was 100 miles away? Did they come out on the other side? Did the big conundrum get solved by them jumping into the river? You may be interested in Revolution's blackout situation, but now there's a new mystery that I'm way more interested in. Did they cross the river or not? Of course I'm being facetious. And I ask this question sarcastically because Ties That Bind spent half of the episode trying to solve that problem before abruptly abandoning it completely. It all started off with a simple question. Can Miles, Charlie, Aaron, and Nora get across the Allegheny River via a militia-controlled bridge in order to continue their quest to save Danny? All the bridges within 100 miles were blown up, and the militia was sinking any boat that tried to cross. Their plight was as simple as storytelling can get. 
There was an obstacle, the river, that needed to be crossed. And the episode was about overcoming that obstacle. It's a classic and effective, oh-so-safe setup for the most remedial of television. Except this is revolution, and they can't seem to even follow the basics in story structure. Maybe this is a two-parter, and that river will be crossed next week, in which case, my apologies, revolution, way to go. It's a cliffhanger. It is pretty big river, after all. But if it isn't going to be concluded next week, Revolution found another way to waste our time this week. And that's astounding that they found another way to piss me off. The guys over at TV.com gave some great advice, and I'm going to pass it along to our viewers. If you think you'd like to continue watching Revolution in the coming weeks, you should feel free to set your alarm for 10 to 4 p.m. and just watch the last six minutes of each episode, because the A story the series is flushing out are so impertinent to anything else that the show probably makes more sense without them. Dan, is my disdain for many of the actors and plotlines making me excessively annoyed by the show, and am I, I overreacting, or was this another terrible episode? Well, Nico, did they cross the river? I mean, I don't know. I don't know either. This was, I, I don't know. This was a big question mark episode for me. It just kind of ended. I shrugged my shoulders and I went, okay, what's this about? And I find it hilarious that TV.com is now comparing Revolution to a NBA basketball game. Because my dad has this philosophy about basketball games that the only part of really watching a basketball game that's worthwhile watching is the last six minutes. And I guess that's the same with Revolution. I agree with that. I mean, they, they said it probably the best out of anyone could. So I can't follow it up. And I think we're just going to move on now. So to leave time for Wu's voicemail. Out of respect for Wu. Is that good with you, Nico? Uh, definitely. I hope I didn't make you laugh too hard on the other line. <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, so we're ready to move on to Bones? Yes, which was actually made up for that waste of time known as Revolution. All right, let's cover the Bones episode, The Patriot in Purgatory. Brennan, intrigued by Phil Jackson's management style, pulls all her interns together as a team for a project worthy of the basketball coach's philosophy. She charges them with identifying remains that have been determined unidentifiable. For the team, however, it turns out that naming the bodies may be the easiest part of their task when one of them is from 9-11, and they must decide if he is a victim or a perpetrator. Nico, I think we've been watching a completely different show for the past two years. Guys, this felt like the first true episode of Bones we've had in a very long time. But again, that did not mean this episode was without its cutesy parts. Guys, Brendan got a little carried away with the whole Phil Jackson thing. But this was way more justified than her aspirations to be president. Because she ultimately was trying to connect with Booth's interest in sports. Because many of Phil Jackson's coaching philosophies come from cultures that Bones has probably studied. But beyond this little hiccup, we got to return to the intelligent writing that we used to expect during the first five seasons of this show. Along with the case that did an excellent job of keeping us emotionally invested through this week's murder victim actually being a hero who died from the injuries he sustained while saving people trapped in the Pentagon during the September 11th attacks. In fact, some of the best Bones episodes are the ones that deal with the sacrifices men and women have made for this country. Got this episode lived right up to that status, thanks to all five interns being in this episode. Now, if you told me all five interns were going to be in this story before watching it, I would have told you it probably would never work. But surprisingly, it paid off here, because the scenes where a bond was formed between these guys sharing their own perspectives on September 11th sucked me right into this episode. At the same time as an added bonus, the circumstances behind this case brought the return of Celie Bruth as the proud military man that we love, instead of the love-sick puppy dog who's been rearing his ugly head ever since Hannah showed up at the beginning of Season 6. 
So in wrapping up my thoughts on Bones for the week, I would have to say that this episode was an excellent start to giving this show a much-needed shot of the arm by stringing together three or four strong episodes. And I think they could make this happen through maintaining the camaraderie between the interns established in this episode. I mean, the audience has pretty much embraced these characters wholeheartedly. So what's wrong with seeing more of them, like out in the field, interacting with other characters besides Hodgins? Or just hanging out at the diner, because it's using something familiar to create something new. Instead of doing something to tick us off, like that crazy rumor, they're going to break up Hodgins and Angela's marriage. So Nico, what did you think of this episode of Bones? Was it a return to what you expected from the show during the first five seasons? Dan, two weeks in a row, I did not hate Bones. Could this mean they've turned a corner? Probably not. While I'm going to disagree slightly with yours and Wu's enthusiasm for this episode, especially Wu, who sent us another voicemail, and I'll play in a minute. He called it called this one of the top five episodes of Bones he's ever seen. And while I know you're not saying that, Dan, I don't think it was on par with what we saw from two seasons or more ago either. Don't get me wrong. This was the best episode in a long while, but it was just that the competition has been so poor lately. I do, however, agree with you, Dan, that the five interns, thank God Daisy was not included. Yeah, she wouldn't have worked in this episode. Was excellent this week, and I would say was the best part of the episode. The scene had the most and best emotional content of an episode that was trying ever so hard to elicit emotion from the viewer by tapping our country's 9-11 emotional heartstrings. While I thought the idea of a missing person being a 9-11 victim was interesting, much of the emotion-seeking scenes that tried to elicit us to feel something were just trying too hard and left me feeling manipulated rather than anything they were trying to elicit. Maybe I'm just being overly critical because I've come to distrust this show and it's less than stellar quality in recent years. But the scene where we saw Aristu and Finn interact, that was the best episode and the most emotional epi- uh, scene we've yeah. seen in in this. But regardless, for a much more positive review and maybe a little more in line, Dan, with what you were thinking, here's Wu's thoughts on Bones. Hey guys, this is Wu. I just wanted to put my two cents down on um, Bones this week, the Veterans Day episode. I don't know if you've covered this episode or not. I think this is one of the best Bones episodes they ever wrote. Very respectful towards veterans. Very respectful on people's on people's different backgrounds, especially with Aristu and with and with Abernathy. And I really, on a lighter note, I really enjoyed um, Temperance Brennan quoting, quoting um, quotes from the legendary Bulls slash Lakers coach Phil Jackson. Especially love the look on the interns' faces when she slapped them all in the behinds. Especially Booth's reaction in the diner was awesome. I mean, no facetiousness when I say I think this is the, one of the, the top five best episodes of Bones I ever saw. Really well written, and I hope they do more episodes like this, this kind of tone. I, I really enjoy it. Great, great work on the podcast, guys, and I'll see you across the airwaves. Bye. Okay, thanks, Wu, for your great thoughts on Bones. You ready to move on? Yeah, sure. And just for the record, I do not think this was one of the top five episodes of Bones of all time. No, that's just what that, I said. Yes, yeah. I didn't think you agreed with that. But I wanted everyone to hear that from me personally. Okay. Just so they're clear. All right, let's move on to Tuesday night with New Girls episode, Menses.
Of course, the best story this week goes to Nick and his silent sage. His one-sided conversations with the old man were great. There's something real creepy about you, pal. You want to get weird? Let's get weird. You got a nice face. Anger problem? Living with them? Are you kidding me? It's frustrating. It's like, just get a job. I like your hat. I like how it's not a team or a logo. It's just blue. Would you rather be covered in fish scales or feathers? Scales. Why, you weirdo? You want to see me jump really high? (laughs) I'm afraid of dying, man. Who am I? The enemy is in me. The enemy is the inner me. Do you understand a word I'm saying? You just nodded everything. (laughs) I need to change. And you showed me that. I have an anger problem. Thank you. Can I get a hug? But obviously the most hilarious moments came during what were the water massage or the, the pool cradling scenes. And the addition of that random old woman in the corner playing the flute, or I thought it was a recorder maybe, only added to the sheer absurdity of these scenes. I like also that n- how Nick thought he could achieve the same results with Jess, and he took her to the pool and tried to do the same thing, which naturally ended in a spectacular disaster of physical comedy we were all hoping for. These scenes were great. This Nick story arc in this episode was easily the best, uh, hands down. Now, I'm eagerly anticipating the awkward, creepy writer types in Jess's creative writing class, since in this episode she was hired to teach adults creative writing. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. Please let this be amazing. I know it's going to be. (laughs) But the best line belonged to Jess this week when talking about her period. You call me a ninny? Yeah, I call you a ninny because you're acting like a ninny, you ninny. Don't call me a ninny. I'm PMSing. Oh, no, 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 I don't want to I feel like I've laid a million eggs and they're all hatching. I feel like I want to murder someone and I also I want soft pretzels. <laughs> It was, a, it was a good episode. Not the best of the season by far, but it was a good episode. But with that, Dan, I think it's about time for you to take over with Sons of Anarchy. Yes, a very, very violent and blood-splashing episode entitled Crucifixed. Jax tries to avoid backlash by racing forward with his own agenda. After five episodes of going the complete opposite direction, Jax finally went back towards his goal of making the Sons of Anarchy Motorcycle Club better, or more legit, by making some smart business deals, got turning against killing the character that I thought he was going to take out last week. Once he discovered the whole situation was caused by an outdated club bylaw, which Jax declared to be racist. However, no matter how much progress Jax makes in his original plan to swoop in as president and save the lives of his family and friends, the writers will just not let him escape the path of darkness as he killed another man in cold blood. But at least these instances are beginning to feel like they're less off the reservation for Jax's character, as the other members of the club are questioning his actions, because they believe he is acting out in anger over his best friend Opie's death. Also, Rod Perlman gave such a great performance to this week's episode, Guys Clay, that I almost forgot he killed the sheriff's wife, since he did such a great job at playing us into feeling sorry for his character. The only problem with this is, is we don't have a clear-cut villain. 
Meaning that both the audience and the characters within the show have no idea where things are going. Because a solid argument can be made for either Clay or Jax being the villain come this season. Because some people could even say it's both of them. Meaning I've got to wait until the dust settles in the season finale before I can make the verdict regarding if this show has gone off the rails or not. But based on the way things are going, I might not even be able to make that call at this point. So with that, Nico, why don't we move on to talking about your thoughts about Vegas. And this week's episode was the sixth episode, The Real Thing. Savino interjects himself into local politics when he decides to groom mob-friendly mayoral candidate George Grady. Sheriff Lamb looks into the murder of a local dentist who had a gambling addiction. This week's Vegas utilized its procedural element again to make the problems of Sheriff Lamb and the problems of Vincent Savino come together. The Real Thing is an episode that toys with the idea of counterfeits in more ways than in simply the casino chips being forged. As much as Ralph Lamb is presented as an authentic cowboy of the Old West mold, a figure plucked from a distant era of the American frontier, he's very much a counterfeit sheriff in the sense that while he's good at at the job, he doesn't exactly do things by the book. He's a man out of his element, struggling to fit into his new context by playing by his own rules, whether that's what the situation calls for or not. Savino, meanwhile, is a false businessman, a counterfeit of legitimacy, having the appearance the decorum and the air of respect, but not the authenticity. He's still a gangster who, much like Ralph, is struggling to establish himself in his new circumstances. This is why, for once, the case of the week doesn't feel so out of place or immaterial to the rest of the episode. It's a springboard for the broader conflict between Vincent and Ralph, providing us with one of the better constructed episodes of the season so far. The conflict in this episode culminates in the revelation that the dentist had been working with one of the dealers at the casino, a young woman who dealt in the fake chips the dentist would make, using dentistry materials that are hard to come by for the anyone outside the profession. When the young woman's boyfriend, a man named Jesse Lynch, wanted one last big score, the dentist panicked and Jesse murdered him for the money. Savino, furious that something of his was taken, confronts Jesse out in his trailer. Holding him at gunpoint, Vincent marches Jesse out into the desert to finish the job when Ralph rolls up in his, in his sheriff's car. What follows is a standoff that illustrates the conflict at the heart of this series. Savino argues that occasionally a bit of lawlessness is necessary. Ralph isn't above circumventing the by the book process required of a sheriff, as I mentioned before, but he's beholden to the law and to a moral code that Savino just isn't. Savino's code doesn't extend far beyond the mercenary concerns of business and greed, and his only real concern beyond that is for his wife and their children. Even though we saw a slice of ambiguity in the opening scene with Ralph, With regards to how he executes the duties of his office, he's hardly a rogue figure. Ralph Lamb is is staggeringly moral in an old-world sort of way, which naturally brings him into conflict with the expansionist new wave instant gratification ideology of Savino. Ralph is able to talk Savino down, but this conflict is far from over. News this week updated Vegas' order from 22 down to 21, but that was merely scheduling issues in the second half of the spring season and not reflective of the show being in trouble. In fact, it is one of the top two new series on network TV, according to the latest CBS promos. So this show is not not doing as well as I thought maybe initially it was doing, but it's still considered one of the top two shows on television. So it's obviously not in any trouble, but I am starting to see 
where it could get old fairly quickly if they don't sort of ramp up some of this conflict like we saw in this week's between Savino and Lamb and showing us how they are similar but how they are so much different. And that's where I thought this episode really took the cake. But that's all I really wanted to talk about for Vegas. And with that, I think I'm about ready to move into Wednesday night. Let's move on to a show we both can agree upon, Dan, with Arrow and its sixth episode, Legacies. But an yeah. off-duty officer gets wounded by bank robbers calling themselves the Royal Flush Gang. Diggle tries to convince Oliver that he must do more than go after the men cut his father's list. Meanwhile, Tommy asks Thea for dating advice, and Mora demands to know why Oliver keeps disappearing. This week's episode of Arrow was quite innovative because it used a conflict that hasn't been used within the superhero genre. If Oliver had to choose how he wants to define his green arrow identity, because either a vigilante or a hero. Now, most of the time, we consider a vigilante kind of hero to be one of the same. But here, being a vigilante meant just going after the names in Oliver's father's book for revenge, and being a hero, which I think is Oliver's goal, even though he doesn't realize it meant following Dick's suggestion of fighting all types of criminals. In other words, this is a perfect example of why it's genius to make Dick a character that Oliver can, can explain his actions and motivations to, instead of relying on a voiceover, because it can provide great stories about a hero defining himself, like what we had this week of Oliver's choice to be both the vigilante, his father wanted, and the hero Dick envisioned turning into a cautionary tale where Oliver discovered he could only choose one of the two options, because his actions to give the king of the royal flush gang away out from his life of crime led to a son losing the father that was keeping his serial killer instinct intact. As for what I did like about this episode, Oliver's mom really ticked me off during this episode. In the same way that Detective Lance normally annoys Michael with her constant nagging on Oliver about always leaving. And if we didn't know about her connection with a well-dressed man and her role in sabotaging the Queen's Gambit, I would have felt sorry for her. But as a reviewer on IG had said, why should viewers care or believe her outburst of emotions about being lonely when she's supposed to be a villain? And I know Michael mentioned on his uh, Arrow podcast that the comic book based on this TV series revolves this issue. But not everyone has the dedication towards this show to fork out money every week for digital comics. So until an explanation is given on the show to Moira's actions, this problem with their character still remains something that needs to be fixed in my book. Lastly, I was glad to see Tommy was back on this episode, because his plotline with trying to court Laurel made his character much more human and likable. Also, even though I liked how it's going to give the writer some great material to work with when Tommy goes on his descent into becoming a villain, Thea's crush on Tommy is a bad situation within the universe of this show. Because I could see him buying Thea a few drinks, getting her to do something horrible, or do something horrible to her, out of jealousy over Laurel's attraction to Oliver. Cause let's just say the guilt trip Oliver is going to go on after discovering what may happen to Thea is just not going to be pretty. So with that, Nico, what was your thoughts on Arrow? Following the events of Damaged, where an Oliver Queen was charged with murder and Deathrope made his live-action debut, Legacies offered what passed for, in my sense, a quieter few days in Holly's life. It allowed the show to focus in on some of the supporting characters more deeply with Varying results from character to character, but for the most part, very well done. 
With Legacies, Arrow tried, for the first time, in my opinion, to keep as many of the main characters as possible sort of involved with this week's plot to some extent. And also tried to do, at the same time, focusing on those side characters, do an action story at the same time so that we could see Arrow in action. And then they also tried to bring all those elements together in some way. While I don't think the episode was as entertaining or as good as last week's, it is the sort of episode that I do want to see Arrow attempt more often as we go forward because I do think bringing all the characters together and making building up the support characters and their backstories and, and the insight into those characters is going to be what makes this show make it past the first season and into five, maybe into seven eight seasons, whatever it ends up going for. So I think these kinds of episodes are very important going forward. Now, I never expected the show Arrow to be so focused on that list, and it shouldn't be long-term because that's just not sustainable. But the way in which Diggle got Oliver to break out of those confines of the list was not only clever, but I hate using this word, and I'm stealing it, but it was organic to the story. I hate that term because we always use it and people are like, what does that mean? But it just felt natural in the way they did it. It felt like you expect it. It wasn't a storytelling plot device that you are like, oh, that would only happen in TV. So I felt it was realistic. And I like that Oliver is really resistant to maybe fighting what he considers only street crimes because it's not what his father intended. But I like that Diggle is attempting to expand what he thinks a crime fighter should fight. Diggle's right to do this, of course, because even if you eliminate all the dirty CEOs and uh, all the rich and corrupt people of Starling City, crime's still going to be there and it'll need to be dealt with. Oliver originally says that the cops can deal with that and that he's only going after these corrupt people. But he sees that some of these some of these criminals are beyond even what the cops can do. And in those cases, he needs to step in. Also, Diggle is there, and I think you were, were getting towards this as well, Dan, in yeah. your, your review. Diggle is there to give Ollie the occasional rude awakening and see the bigger picture outside the mission his father bestowed upon him. And it's also, you, you said this exactly, that Ollie can now explain his actions and motivations to a live person instead of using the voiceovers we had in the first few episodes. I know that Wu had a lot of issues with these voiceovers complaining about them burdening viewers and being sort of stilted narration or not really flowing well with the story and and had said that he'd hoped we'd seen the last of those heroic monologues now that Diggle is part of this short story and is Ollie's partner and I think Wu's gonna have a point there that we won't see as much to these voiceovers now going forward now as for the bank robbers the distinct masks of the robbers war indicated that they were the royal flush gang all by a fairly low rent version of that band of villains i didn't think they were nearly as well portrayed as they were in maybe the batman animated series or any of the comic books that they've shown up in so i thought that it was kind of low rent they however suffered from the same problem most of the villains on the show have so far a lack of development the encounter between ollie and the father played by ata favorite curry graham in the bar was nicely handled but for the most part the concept of a working class family son suddenly becoming professional thieves came across as bizarre and far-fetched even by superhero standards there was also the problem that one of 
them nearly murdered a police officer in cold blood in the opening heist, which robbed the group of any real sympathy we could have developed for them as viewers. All in all, this was a slightly less exciting, more side character development rich episode that did little in the way of really progressing much of the story. Even the flashbacks were less exciting this week. Ultimately, this was not a bad episode. It was just suffered from being sandwiched between the big debuts of Deathstroke last week and Huntress next week. So really, those are my thoughts this week. Once again, I love the episode. I'll be back on and can't wait for the chance to be back on Longbow Hunters in a few weeks for episode eight of their show. Yep, definitely exciting. And for more on Arrow episodes, listen to Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast, hosted by our very own Michael J. Petty and Wu Kim. Indeed. All right. With that, I think we need to get moving and we'll jump right into Last Resort with the episode Nuke It Out. Chaplin and Kendall attempt to identify who stole their nuclear launch key. Meanwhile, Christine is accused of conspiracy. Yeah, less than 20 minutes after I wrote my first draft of this review came word that Last Resort had been canceled. Suffice it to say, I'm I'm highly surprised and unhappy to hear that news. ABZ, however, will complete production and air the entire initial 13-episode order, and I will review the remaining episodes, and essentially that means we are now halfway through this series. So let's get into this review. Things continue to move quickly on Last Resort, and maybe that is a good thing considering that news I just mentioned. I was very happy to see the reveal on who the mole is come out after just one week, though of course the Colorado crew are still in the dark, but we now know. It's hardly a holy crap reveal, but at the same time, it didn't feel unbelievable, so that was good. I actually spent much of the episode wondering if it would turn out to be Prosser, even though he may have been a pretty on-the-nose choice. It would have been way too obvious, but at the same time, they did a good job of leading us that way. He was notably off the entire episode in his whole storyline, but when he was being patted down by Julian's men, I figured they'd find the key, so I realized it wasn't him. I did not take the grace bait, though, and knew she was not the CIA mole, especially with how hard they were trying to get us to bite on that idea early on in this episode. That was a little weak, in my opinion. But no, it was Cortez. So we found out she did not sleep with Julian while he was while she was his prisoner, but rather offered to be his mole. Hey, she herself told Grace that deal was off because he killed one of her comrades, not because, you know, she wouldn't do it, which was when I started to think very heavily that it could be her. But I was not 100% sure until they actually revealed it in the last 20 seconds of this episode. As I mentioned last week, it's increasingly difficult to see Marcus and Sam letting the Julian character continue to be a threat. And this episode both acknowledged and underlined that fact. Marcus actually having the man who admitted to turning one of the Colorado crew into a human bomb killed was certainly a huge moment and effective as he was basically telling Julian, we both know you were behind this. But Julian was ar- has already proven to not back down and immediately had Prosser tortured without pause. I think the problem is we keep being told that Julian is loved by the people and thus killing him would jeopardize the Colorado crew for some reason, but we haven't been shown enough evidence of that. Certainly Sophie and Tani, the uh, guy who, uh, the other French guy or, or the other United Nations guy, are the only locals we really know and they don't love him. So it's hard to really believe they wouldn't just be better off killing this Julian character and dealing with the consequences. I don't see the, the locals revolting. This was a strong episode for Prosser as well. His one-man mission to stop any drugs from being dealt to the Colorado crew led to some funny lines like, Hey, Kurt Cobain, great 
little uh, reference. Good stuff. And and really a badass moment when he beat down the dealer who was selling to his men. It was it was all really compelling stuff. It also led to the dramatic peak of the episode with the bomb threat and to Prosser getting his feet burned and being forcibly injected with a painkiller he's previously beaten an addiction to. For the past few weeks, Prosser has become sort of a, a lovable, gruff, and funny presence on the show. But this episode not only gave him a much bigger spotlight, but gave him plenty of physical and mental anguish to deal with in the weeks to come. And Robert Patrick, as always, was terrific at it. I may have gone on a little long this week with my review of the episode, but I think it stems from my shock that this show, which I thought was one of the top two new series this season, just slightly behind our next show, Elementary, was canceled so early on and will only get the original 13 episodes. I hope the writers will work to give those give those of us that love this show a fitting and proper wrap-up to many of the storylines they've started. And the executive producer tweeted out that that is his plan to give us a great series finale in that 13th episode. So I'm looking forward to that. Most definitely. But with that, and we're running short on time, I think we're going to jump right back into that number one show, in my opinion. Oh, number one new show, in my opinion, Elementary, with the seventh episode. Holmes investigates a double homicide that is eerily similar to a series of murders that took place 13 years ago. Meanwhile, Watson visits Sherlock's former rehab center to learn more about him. The mystery this week was once again much more worthy of a Sherlock episode than a few weeks ago's week effort, which it appears was the exception that proves the rule for the show to be successful. This week's killer turned out to be the illegitimate son of a serial killer who was seduced by his father to kill five people and make it look like he was innocent. Why would this work, you ask? Well, because the previously only criminally negligent NYPD went to just playing criminal this week with a cop planning evidence at a crime scene to send the murderer to jail 13 years ago. And then that sort of worked out because luckily the guy was actually guilty this time. Also, it defies common sense that Captain Gregson wouldn't recognize one of the station's own mugs when cataloging evidence at a crime scene back in the 1990s. Even if the NYPD has random mugs coming in and out of the station so fast that they can't keep track of them all, that was a weirdly distinctive mug that wouldn't have noticed that the key piece of evidence was also the, the vessel of coffee he had personally handed to the serial killer during interrogation with like maybe his own fingerprints still on it wouldn't that have come up when they processed the evidence yeah it was a little weak the police in this episode again seemed wholly incompetent and without the genius of holmes would not be able to solve even the simplest of crimes however from a holmes and watson's perspective this episode was once again brilliant holmes deductive skills were once again in rare form and led to a satisfying conclusion as he continually pointed out the nypd's ineptitude watson while still on the outs with Holmes, though I think that they were able to fully resolve that issue this episode, had a wholly interesting side plot this week as she visited his rehab facility to learn more about him and his time in rehab, hoping to find out more information about the Irene Adler character, but was mostly unsuccessful until speaking with the most unlikely of characters, the groundskeeper who Sherlock bonded with over his love of beekeeping. Really, this was once again showing Watson learning and using the deductive reasoning skills she is picking up from Sherlock. Great scenes with her this week. Another great episode that is keeping me wanting to see more, even if it makes the NYPD look inept. But that's a normal thing of Sherlock stories. Right. He has to make the the cops look. But I think it makes Sherlock look smarter when he is 
so brilliant and does something yeah. so well, but the cops are doing everything perfect and, and they're still not able to catch the guy. But Sherlock is able to. I think it, it diminishes Sherlock when the cops are so inept. So I hope that they go get away from this trope and, and sort of go with a more you know useful NYPD that Sherlock yeah. ultimately goes above and beyond. But that's enough about Sherlock and Elementary. Let's move on to one of your favorite shows, Dan, Burn Notice. Yeah, let's move on to talking about Bird Notice with the episode Over the Line. My name is Michael Weston. I used to be a spy. Michael is accused of a crime at a local hotel. Elsewhere, ruthless CIA manhunter Olivia Riley questions Sam in an attempt to get to Michael. This week's Bird Notice was more of what I expected from last week's two-hour epic escape from Panama. Because Michael and his team branding themselves as traitor to essentially protect America resulted in Sam and Michael being held up at a hotel with a CIA SWAT team raining down on them. Fast-paced car chases got a crazed last-ditch effort to escape being arrested. And with that, just in case it's important to anybody, I am going to give a spoiler warning about a major character death. So if that's going to bother you, just jump on to the grim section. So, as far as the action and kind of the plot line for the good guys go, this episode was great, but I've got to say, I was kind of ticked off that they killed off Agent Tom Card, played by Scrubs' John C. McGinley, as he would have made a much better villain to hunt Michael and his team down, compared to this Olivia Riley character they introduced in this episode, who came off as way too brash for me, like Captain Gates on Castle, could try way too hard to channel Tommy Lee Jones's Oscar award-winning performance from The Fugitive. With her even using his famous I don't care line, which was totally kind of lame for this show. I know we're supposed to hate Olivia Riley since she's essentially a bad guy, but if she doesn't die a flying chainsaw death at the hands of Sam X very soon, I'm going to take back my comment I said last week of Bird Notice being able to avoid the dreaded sixth season slump. So, Bird Notice, do something about this character, or I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> that's all I've got to say. Nice. All right, Dan, with that, I think we've wrapped up Thursday night, and it's about time to wrap up this entire show with jumping into Friday night's Grimm's mid-season finale, The Season of the Hexen Beast. Adeline returns to Portland with revenge on her mind, while Renard tries to deal with his obsessive infatuation with Juliet that Nico really wants to end. Yes, I do. <laughs> This week's episode was the mid-season finale, and while it did not entirely resolve the terrible Juliet story arc, it made great strides in progressing it forward. So that was good. And this review is going to be a little bit longer than normal, just because it was the mid-season finale. Last season on Grimm, one of its best installments was the episode Cat and Mouse, a late entry which balanced its case of the week a journalist resistance leader fleeing a hound-like assassin with the first real substantive information on the show's wider universe. It introduced the concept of the Verat and the Seven Houses, a world-spanning Vessen organization with strong connections to Renard and the mysterious Reapers who triggered Nick's grim awakening in the pilot. The reveal meant that for the first time, rather than sticking to cryptic references and unconnected phone calls, the actions of the episode had a sense of a broader scope. It was an indication that the modern world of the Grimms and Vessen extended far beyond Portland and that neither Nick or Renard was operating in a vacuum. 
I bring Cat and Mouse up because this season of Grimm, while I have loved nearly every episode, it's been a source of frustration for me that the show's barely addressed any of those details since. There's certainly been a sense of narrative progression, letting Hank in on the Grimm secret, the ongoing romantic tensions between Nick and his amnesiac Juliet, but for the most part, the episodes have been grounded firmly in procedural territory. Although, to very good effect, because I have loved this season. There's a new Vessin every week, each with their own tragic or devious story, and while they may have some tangential connections to the larger world, that connection is kept vague or irrelevant to that week's particular action or the story of that episode. And in some cases, like The Good Shepherd, the, uh, that they wind up being almost ridiculous. And if you don't remember what The Good Shepherd was, that was the episode where the two sheep, sheep people, got away with everything in the end. And I said, really turned me off to the whole episode. But that all changes in this season of the Hexabeast mid-season finale, however, an outing that's firmly grounded in the larger world of the show. It presented the return of the mysterious key that Nick's mother promised was part of a larger puzzle dating back to the Crusades, the Verat's merciless Hunyager enforcers, and the most dis- direct involvement by the Seven Houses in Portland events today. And perhaps not coincidentally, it also happens to be the best episode of the, sh- the show's done all season, an episode that uses this larger world as an impetus to push several characters out of their holding patterns where things are said and seen which no one can take back and all of this is progressed by the return of the hex and beast adeline shade in one of the most badass scenes of the entire series monroe leads the verat to a secluded location and asks nick you gonna arrest them or what and nick responds or what in a tone that brooks no argument and with or what involving beating the attackers to death with a studded baseball bat like club seriously awesome scene i loved it It's great to see Nick Monroe working together again so closely after Hank sort of supplanted him earlier this season when he was brought into the loop. And it looks like we'll be getting even more of that now that the two, Nick and Monroe, are roommates. Nick having finally realized that the status quo at home can't remain as it is and he moved out. So this was a great mid-season finale that really progressed the overall story arc. And I'm loving this second season. And I'm really loving that they went back to the overall huge universe and the concepts brought up in that great episode, Cat and Mouse. So, Dan, this was a great one. And and really, if you hadn't ever seen a grim episode and you saw this one, you'd be like, this is a badass show. Well, that's so, how they yeah. do a mid-season finale. Really, it is. And it really left a lot of things, answered some questions, left a lot of things, even more questions on the table. So really, exactly what you want to do to really keep the story going. And with that, I think it's about time we move into the closing. How about yeah, you? most definitely. Let's get this closing going. All right. On next week's episode, we're going to continue with a slightly, and by slightly, I mean completely modified version of our standard reviews, as there will be no Once Upon a Time, Modern Family, Supernatural, Big Bang Theory, Person of Interest, or Fringe this week. But we will be covering Castle and Go On and having a shorter rundown section featuring mostly the Monday and Tuesday shows like Revolution, Bones, New Girl, and Vegas. But don't worry because we'll be back to the usual the next week after that. For even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. 
and just real quick to mention to you guys, so there isn't any confusion, that episode that Nico just previewed will be episode 101 of ATA. For episode 100, we are going to have a special presentation where Michael, Wu, and our new partner in crime, Andy, will be joining us for a retrospective on the first 100 episodes of ATA and the experience that our podcast has gone through over the past two years. So get psyched up about that episode. God, we've got a big thing coming and big things planned for the episode. So God, check that episode out. That'll be episode 100 and that'll be a special ATA event. And then 101, we'll be back to our standard set of reviews. Also, you guys can check out our spinoff podcast. We've got ATA Retro Reviews. And that show basically covers past TV shows that either got canceled or went out on their own terms. We also have Across the Airways DC Nation podcast, which is designed to cover episodes of Green Lantern, the animated series, and Young Justice Invasion. But now since those shows are on hiatus, we're basically talking about the current comics of the DC New 52, as well as doing commentaries on the DC animated films. And also, you guys, the last thing you can check out is ATA Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast. And that's the podcast hosted by Michael and Wu, where they cover episodes of the hit new CW series Arrow in much more detail than we do here in our rundown section. So you can check that out, too. Also, if you'd like to contact us with, you know, your congratulations on ATA being able to pull off 100 episodes, or if you want to give us any of your crackpot theories on any of the shows we watched, you can contact us by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. And there you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Also, you can click the like button on our website page to get access to all of the movie and TV news that Nico finds out during the week on Facebook. Get through following us on Facebook. You can also stay updated on our podcast releases. Get for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter. Again, our Twitter is Across Airwaves. There's no the on there. It's just Across Airwaves. Or you can join our circle on Google+. Also, if you would like to be a part of our show, like Wu has done over the past couple weeks, you can send us a voicemail with your thoughts on any of the shows we cover. Okay, what number can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. Also, we have a YouTube channel, which features previews and promos for upcoming movies. So if you want previews for all those movies, check them out. And also, we have a playlist of all the shorts that are shown during Cartoon Network's programming block, DC Nation. And also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast to listen to all the ways you can contact us, you can download our Android app, which will let you listen to our podcast episodes. You can stay in contact with our podcast through your cellular phone if you run on an Android system. And if you have an iPhone or iPad, you can download our Podcast Box app, which will let you access our podcast and communicate with our podcast through those devices. So once again, for our ATA Arrow podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty and Wu Kim, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reistek. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.